lying in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scats. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels Wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming speed. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lima bean. I wish that I could spread my wings. I wish that I had seven limbs. That way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kind of understand it. <laughs> wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. Yeah. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic rock. <laughs> Focused on myself. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like. I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. Like this. I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we move and it feels just like this. Feels just like this. It's just, it's like, like who the donkey? We would turn some dumb shit into something that got everybody wild in our circumference. Make assumptions, it ain't nothing new. Fuck a mile, fuck a you. I've been chewing through these rappers, flavors lasting over loop. Young old student of a better Carolina rice. Two J's and I'm not nobody. Good times, hanging in the chapel. Waiting for a hot meal, lighting up the combo. Looking for a hot meal, about to start a doc. Lilac, yeah, silicon, meet it like a top top. Kicks like 808, kicks like 808. I ain't trying to say it again. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and I am here today to talk about the latest episode, as always, of Bad Faith Podcast. This week, I had the pleasure of speaking to Matt Stoller, who is an antitrust expert. Probably my biggest regret from law school is that I never took antitrust, and so instead, I just chit-chat with Matt Stoller when I have questions and concerns about what's going on in the world. He was invaluable in my analysis for today's radar on um, the Hill, which I have been hosting. Um, I've been doing three days a week, and it has been a lot of fun. Today's radar was about the uh, baby formula shortage and uh, his insights into the, the antitrust implications of that, how that is the root of why it is that one factory goes down and it causes a nationwide shortage. Shortage have been invaluable. David Dan wrote an amazing article about the subject over at the American Prospect. That was the resource for me today. And also I wanted to talk to him about his take on why Elon Musk is really dangerous, not the kind of liberal hand-wringing that happens about them just kind of like not liking him and thinking he's uncool, but because of some of his relationship to China and his demonstrated history of kind of kowtowing to um, the political establishment there and the way that he does not to the American establishment, 
Uh, and we, before we were able to get into some of the meatiness of that, though, we got derailed by what I ultimately thought was an interesting debate back and forth about the nature of American exceptionalism, whether or not the left is overly concerned with coming off as, you know, not xenophobic and un- unintentionally and perhaps improperly runs cover for the bad things that happen in China in the way they wouldn't in the U.S., or whether, in fact, what the left is really doing is blocking a certain brand of American exceptionalism that would use certain failings of other countries around the world as a veil for America's own failures, the country where we actually vote and have control over what happens. I am hoping to be joined by a couple of guests today. Oh! It looks like one is in the chat. I'm going to bring him up. Some of you I saw online were recommending that I have Danny Haifong on to push back against some of the China stuff because I will be the first person to confess that I am not an expert on those matters. So I'm going to bring him up on stage to talk about what he thought about today's episode. And as always, we will be taking questions. So Danny, unmute yourself. Hello. Hi. Hey, Brianna. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Love all that you do. And and yeah, it's good to be here. Of course. It's such a pleasure. I feel like this meeting has been a long time coming. I can't believe we never really chatted until now. You know, life is busy. It's it's a, it's a constant struggle, but appreciate you making the time. It's It's really my pleasure. Look, I am the first to admit, I think more people in the media space should admit when they're just ignorant about a subject. And this is a space where my hand is raised high in the air. I also just really feel like I have to disclose to the group today, to my to my my um, debris family, that look, I have a very busy schedule and I squeeze in fun time when I can. And I just really have to confess that I had a couple of cocktails with a friend <laughs> immediately preceding this. So I'm in a really fun and loose mood, which is not necessarily a match for the subject at hand. But Danny, let me just open it up to you first. What did you think of today's episode? Well, that's interesting because I've been battling a stomach bug for the last few days, so I'm in a different kind of mood. But mm. uh, yeah, well, today, you know, well, I think what you said before about China, right? And I think this is just, and and I don't think this is the fault of of just ordinary people. I think that there is a huge information war when it comes to China. So it really is difficult to get information about China. So it, it it's not a surprise to me that it's just, it's just difficult for progressives, for the left, the vast majority of the left, right? Even those who consider themselves the most communist, anarchist, whatever, uh, have a hard time understanding China. It's why I try to focus on it. It's why I do the podcast here, Cold War Brew. It's why most of my work focuses on it right now, because it is such an important topic. And today's episode, I mean, look, I think it's really important to talk about the monopolization of capital in the United States, how global capitalism has become extremely concentrated in terms of wealth and power. Uh, but on the other hand, I do see uh, you know people like Matt Stoller. He's not he's not really alone. There are many people who have a lot of I think misgivings about China, where they end up through their critique of American capitalism, uh, they end up actually, and I, and I think you alluded to this in the episode, actually 
sort of falling into xenophobic politics. And, you know, I've been following Matt Stoller for a long time. He's, he's a pretty big voice in the, in, in the media space. And, you know, I think one of the things that really needs to be clarified is the, I think, the role that China truly plays on the world stage and how the United States has for many, many years now, right? And we can say that this really began under uh, Barack Obama when he declared the pivot to Asia. The United States has been looking at China as the number one threat to U.S. hegemony. And that's this is not hyperbole. This is just facts. This is exactly what most U.S. military strategists and what most U.S. economists are saying. This, China is the biggest threat. And with that, there has been an incredible information war that has essentially projected all of the U.S.'s shortcomings, all of the things that the United States is doing right at this time. And, and this was alluded to in the episode where you talked about U.S. corporations and what they're doing and how they ultimately decide on their own to shift their capital and their investment abroad because there's cheaper labor abroad. There's cheaper resources abroad. China, on the other hand, has grown to this point where now I think journalists like Matt Stoller feel like there is this threat, quote unquote, that China presents. And this wasn't so much the narrative when China actually was like a low wage hub. Now China is growing to the point where there is a huge middle class, extreme poverty has been alleviated there, and it's going to be the biggest economy in the world in the next decade or so. And it's leading in all sorts of areas that the United States has seeded, right? High technology, renewable energy. We can go across more infrastructure like high-speed rail, which the U.S. is zero of, and China is like 30,000 kilometers of. Like all of these things the U.S. has seeded. And uh, in order to sort of, I think, mask the U.S.'s own shortcomings, there has been, uh, it's been really easy to look at China as the enemy because, look, there's a long history to this. From 1949 onward, China has been looked at as like a yellow peril, red scare situation, right? Uh, And that's been the case uh, ever since then. But especially in the last decade, uh, the United States has ramped up uh, really what is a new Cold War against China. And a lot of that is because the U.S. is feeling its grip on global power, economic and military power dwindling, and it's losing legitimacy at home, as Mm. you well know, Brianna, there's such a huge legitimacy crisis politically. And so, right, I think Russia and China, right, Democrats really go hard at Russia, Republicans really go hard at China. I think that there is this um, uh, sort of dual campaign of war, information war, propaganda war, military, economic, targeted at China for many different reasons. But I think the two biggest ones are that China is viewed as this threat to the U.S.'s military supremacy, economic supremacy, and also the U.S. has a lot to scapegoat right now. It really does. And so it really helps when you can get, you know, 80% of Americans to believe that China is, you know, the the biggest threat to their so-called interests, right? Rather than, 
I don't know, the United States government, which is literally writing blank checks, $40 billion to send uh, military aid to Ukraine while, you know, uh, people can't get, parents can't get baby formula and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, inflation is rising at the rate that it is. Yeah. So the reason that I, you know, invited Matt on is because he had this take about Elon Musk that was critical, but different from the mainstream criticism, which is basically that Elon Musk is, you know, you know, bad because uh, he's a tech guy and, you know, he wants to let Donald Trump back on the platform and, you know, the lib distaste for that notion has kind of pervaded the tenor of the criticism of him so far. But, you know, as I've been, you know, co-hosting Rising, it's been frustrating to me that any of my criticisms of Musk, or not even criticisms, but like, I just, I am being neutral is interpreted as a criticism, right? If I say like, well, I don't think he's going to save Twitter from, you know, whatever threat to free speech exists. You know, I don't believe that he has these altruistic notions because nobody spends $44 billion for altruistic notions. You know, can we just like introspect a little bit about what might be going on here and what we should be concerned about? That is just lumped in with the lib criticism and it's been very frustrating. So when I saw Matt Stoller have this, different take. I said, okay, let's come and talk about it and let's unpack the, you know, he, he substantiated in his article, all of the different ways that Musk has behaved differently when chastised by the Chinese government, as opposed to the American government, the different posture he's taken here and there and why that might be and whether or not he will really kind of stand up and thumb his chest when it comes to free speech issues, when it is in the context of the CCP. We ended up getting derailed before we could get, like, get close to that because he said this. And I was looking for the clip. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to pinpoint it. And I don't want you guys to suffer through, you know, more of more of this episode than, you know, more of the conversation than is necessary. I'm going to try to find it while you're while you're talking, Danny. But he basically said that the Chinese Communist Party is analogous to Nazi Germany. What's your response to that characterization? Wow. Uh, well, you know, to to be honest, it's it really is it really is a far right talking point. I mean, this is what we've been hearing about China from the farthest right circles in the United States about comparing China to Nazi Germany and the and the Communist Party of China to, to the Nazi Party. To me, that's really I think the the most it's kind of degrading and and almost just like insulting a propaganda about about China in the sense that it really does it really doesn't have any basis in reality so right the Nazis the, the Nazis in Germany and in Europe who rose to power uh, in a period of great capitalist expansion and and then extreme depression and war, right? And and they were able to exploit that to the point where if it wasn't for the Soviet Union, uh, a lot of Europe may still uh, be uh, under uh, the sort of Nazi banner. But with China, it's completely different. I mean, I think when, when I hear that said, I guess I just wonder if they know anything about the history of China. So... In 1949, China was the poor, one of the poorest, if not the poorest, country in the world. 
save for maybe countries like Libya, for example, but it was very similar in terms of standard of living, right? The, the life expectancy was a, sh- a shade under f- 40 years old. And China had just come out of a long history of being uh, assaulted, attacked, uh, occupied, and brutalized by foreign powers, whether it was the Japanese or the British, which colonized Hong Kong. Uh, they call it the century of humiliation in China, and they still do. It's still a, a huge point of contention and, and a, a point of historical remembrance because it was after 1949 where the Chinese said, no more. We are never going to experience something like that ever again. And up until this point, they've been right. And so I guess if we look at the the record of, let's say, <laughs> the Nazis, which is a record of war, racist brutality, the suppression of communism and socialism and leftism. We look at China, the Communist Party of China, which has historically been, especially if we just look at the last decade, invested in things like poverty alleviation, infrastructure development, fighting climate change, right? ambitious targets, which unlike the United States, I mean, China is a renewable energy hub. It has been meeting its markers on uh, in the Millennial Development Goal, all of that, uh, and is set to be a carbon-neutral country by 2060. If we look at how China handled the pandemic, right, it, it makes mm-hmm. me wonder what reality people are speaking of when they compare China to Nazi Germany. And also, I think this idea that China is some kind of free, you know, some of this is just pure xenophobia, that China is some kind of free speech nightmare, right? That people in China have no say over anything, that you could just 1.4 billion people, or at least maybe a shade under that, if you consider uh, most that there are some official, you know, there are thousands of Chinese officials, uh, you could say, okay, they they don't, uh, the rest of the Chinese people have no say in anything. But if that were the case, then how does a society raise the standard of living in such a rapid way? I mean, now life expectancy in China is about 77 to 78 years in Beijing, right? Life expectancy is now higher than in New York City. Mm. Uh, How does a country like China go from not having an operable telephone in 1949 to having the most 5G base stations in the world? How does one get there without any quote-unquote democracy, right? And most Chinese people believe they have a democracy. I think 70 plus percent of people believe they have a democracy. 90 plus percent have a, a positive view of their government. If we look at just history itself in the United States, when has the standard of living ever improved in the United States? It's when workers and people fought back and said, no, we're going to have more of a say. And they won that say. And I don't understand why we can't have a similar lens when we think of China, which has this history of fighting back against brutal oppression and then has actually instituted really interesting, far-reaching policies that indicate then actually people do have a say that there are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Actually, there are millions of Communist Party cadre. There are million, there are really millions of deputies and people in the local government all the way up into the national government 
we're participating in society and trying to make life better. I don't understand how so, that could well, be compared so here, to Nazi I Germany, think, which was the exact opposite case. So well, I, I guess that's the, my take on the whole well, well, China specifically, Nazism, the CCP equals Nazism. It's just, it doesn't well, no, make well, much sense. Well, more, more specifically, Danny, more specifically, Matt was saying something about how the conditions were similar to the conditions that would precipitate Hitler. That, the, you know, here's um, someone in the chat says, you know, Matt compared the ignorance of their rise after World War One and ignoring Hitler as an insignificant hustler um, to what's happening in China at present. And that, you know, he's concerned. So here, here was my big issue. Knowing really nothing. You know, I, I see the fights happening on the Internet about, you know, whether or not there is persecution of the Uyghurs and whether or not that persecution rises to the level of genocide and people fighting over the word of the the word genocide and the definition of it and people who say it's not genocide being accused of denying any and all ethnic persecution against Uyghurs and every shade of position you can take in between. And I will admit to having put off the idea of an episode on the subject to some point in the future, at which point I will become expert on it. But that point has not yet arrived. So when this ended up coming up, organically in the concept in the context of the episode i wasn't really interested in getting in a debate about it but what was interesting to me was this idea that it it that you know whether or not you will admit to any wrongdoing in a country means something meaningful about your broader ideological ideological position when it's quite obvious that any country anywhere is going to have a large number of very bad things that are going on inside of it at any given time and so what is the point, especially a country that is as large and as powerful as China? That's just the nature of the beast. It's the fifth of the world's population. It's going to have at least a fifth of the world's problems. So, what, you know, what is what are we? What is the point? What is what is being kind of like? What is like the political significance of bringing up any given thing? Especially when America, as the world's wealthiest um, nature, Brianna, I, I I haven't been able to catch this. Can I think people are saying that it's it's sorry kind of that's, breaking up. That's my fault. I don't I, know if it's just me. I I was like also having trouble with the app. I always do on my Android, but no, that was entirely my fault. I'm sorry. I should have been watching the chat, but of course I can't watch the chat because it's it stops after a few minutes, and then that's and then I open the window on YouTube to try to watch the chat, and that's what causes me to break up. I'm sorry. I meant to close the window before I started talking. Um, what I was basically saying is, oh, now I'm hearing myself echo back. Why is that? On a delay. Never mind. What I was basically saying is that every country has bad things happening, especially the bigger it is and the more powerful it is. And so that's not to say that it's not worth talking about and criticizing the bad things that are happening in any given country. But sometimes when it's brought up in a kind of extemporaneous way, it does feel as though it's being used as a shield um, from talking about the ways that America is failing, especially when it's phrased as, you know, America is better than X place. America is better than China, which can be contested on any number of specific met- metrics. But even if you agree on the whole that you'd rather be here than there, which, you know, fair enough, fine. For some people might feel that way, you know, with good reason. You might feel that way if you are me in America, but you might not feel that way if you are an incarcerated person in America. And you might feel better about China, you know, depending on your circumstances and all, you know, you can figure out where I'm going there. But what is frustrating to me is the idea that to resist the comparison that seems to be aimed at minimizing America's own failings is to ignore the failings 
of China that are endemic to any country at any time, of course. Hmm. You know, am I, look, what, what I think what Matt would say in this situation is, it's not enough to say that everybody's bad. There are degrees of badness, and why won't you acknowledge in particular, uh, you know, the labor abuses, what he described throughout the episode, you know, it's a slave labor. Like, why are you caveating that? Why can't you, why is it, why are you pretending that it's xenophobic or somehow an unfair um, persecution to call China out for its labor abuses? Can't you call China out at the same time you call America out? Why is calling China out perceived as a cover for what is going on in our own backyard? What would you say to that? Well, for one, uh, when he said slave labor in China, he particularly, I remember he particularly said Uyghurs, right? And that's a contested point. That is not based in fact. That is a claim that's been made in Western media through very dubious sources. So when Matt Stoller was making that claim, he was basically regurgitating something that has been said about China in relation to Xinjiang over the last, especially over the last six years, but really the last three or so years, where it's just been nonstop that, you know, there's concentration camps there, there's genocide there, there's but, but slave short camps of, there. Short of, short of genocide, because I don't think Matt used the word genocide. Right, right, Is right. it contested that Uyghurs are a persecuted minority? Or are you just saying it's contested that it's, it, whatever is happening amounts to a genocide? Well, it's it is contested that they're a persecuted minority. So I've actually been to Xinjiang and I've spoken to people on the ground. The narratives that have been told about people there, especially the Uyghur population, which their the lives of Uyghur people have improved incredibly over the last, especially over the last decade, but especially since 1949, their lives have improved a lot. Uh, but but, but I think that, but. Sorry. Come on. The, the idea of the idea of saying that. I mean, you could say the same thing of you know black people in America from 1860 to to 1900, but that doesn't really. It's not a really meaningful commentary on how the country treats you. I mean, yeah, it's just better than being a slave, and we had the invention of penicillin and you know electricity, and things got better for everyone. But you know what I mean? Like you just described at the top of this episode, huge standard of living. Um, increases in China across the board as it moved into a kind of, I don't know what you words you would use to describe it, but correct me if I'm wrong, like a post-industrial kind of modern society. But that, and every population is going to be swept up along with that to a certain degrees, but that doesn't mean there still aren't class hierarchies and that there still can't be persecution against a group, no? So, I mean, that's sure, hypothetically, but if we actually look at the actual indicators, mm -hmm. right, between... Uyghur people and Han people, given where the situation was, even just four decades ago, the life expectancy, uh, standard of living across the board, income, etc. It's very close to Han ethnic people at this time. And this isn't even to say like Xinjiang as a region, right? Not just Uyghur people who just happen to be the majority in that region, over like four, around 40% of the population uh, of that province. Uh, Xinjiang, 
was one of the poorest regions in China historically over the course of its history and has just eradicated extreme poverty. So yes, there was uneven development. But could we say, for example, the, exa- the example of uh, Black people uh, post-Civil War into 1900, there's nothing like lynching and Black codes or anything like that in China. There is, There has been a system to address what was a really big problem, especially from 1990 to 2016. There's a huge problem with armed groups that were coming in on the border of Afghanistan, on the border uh, of Xinjiang, because they share a border, and there was a lot of terrorism there. There was a lot of attacks. There was the Rumchi riots, 2019, 2014, killings. There, there is a heightened security situation. I mean, I was there. I know there was a heightened security. I was stopped and they're like, are you Turkish? You know, there is a heightened security situation there. But to compare that to the United States' system of, uh, of white supremacy post-Civil War, I think uh, maybe isn't the best example. But I, I will say that, there, of course, there is uneven development but, but in what Xinjiang about, but compared let's, to let's, Beijing or anywhere let's, else. Let's stop and, short of the comparison. Let's stop short of the comparison to you know, white supremacy in America because that's not really the question. The question that was presented was whether or not there is ethnic persecution, not whether or not, because I don't want to do the same thing from your side as Matt was doing from his side, which is to say, well, if the other side is worse, then we don't need to interrogate what's happening on our side, you know, on our preferred side. So, you know, bad things can happen. Like I, I want us, to, I want this to be a safe enough space where we recognize that this, this is, this is no community that is interested in letting America off the hook for anything. But, you know, I'm just I'm curious in this primary question of whether or not there's persecution against Uyghurs in China, because at the end of the day, I, I understand this is a contested issue, but I'm a little unclear about how it can be so contested. Some some people are saying that there are full on concentration camps. How is this in the age of aerial photography and drones and digital X, Y and Z? How can this possibly be? A contested issue today. Are there or are there not concentration camps? Why is there ambiguity there? Well, there's ambiguity because the term concentration camp is used as hyperbole. It's used as a way to frame China as uh, exactly how what we were talking about earlier, as like Nazi Germany, right? It's used to frame China as that. The reality of the situation is is that, of course. There is a prison system in China, and because there was this heightened crime, this this terrorism that happened there, uh, there were people who did go to prison there for those crimes. But unlike the U.S. system where people just go away, a lot throw away the key, a lot of what China has done, and I think this is why terrorism in China, unlike most countries around its border in Central Asia that are they're not able to do this for for many different reasons. Uh, China invested in education and in and in employment, so things have actually improved to the point where people don't feel the need to pick up arms like they might feel in a place like Kazakhstan or Afghanistan, especially Afghanistan, where I mean the situation there is so dire. You have, what tens of thousands of infants dying per, uh, you know, dying regularly. So I, I think the reason why it's contested in this age where 
it's it's kind of like North Korea, right? They they always say that there's all of these camps in North Korea, but all you get are these fuzzy satellite images. And we had fuzzy satellite images from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute that ended up being about China that ended up in Xinjiang that ended up being schools or you know stadiums or whatever said as concentration camps. The the truth is is that yes. People were put into to prison who committed violent acts like stabbings and shootings like that did happen uh, in Urumqi and other cities in Xinjiang. And there are also many more who went to vocational schools and train and, and, and employment centers and and live normal lives. So I think it's hype it's it's one thing to say that there is you know, there, there is a, a need to have a conversation about what's going on in Xinjiang. But I think it's another thing to say that there's ethnic persecution because... Okay. Uh, well, no one here, like, can we just stay with this for a second? Because I don't, I'm not saying any of that. Let's even like excise yeah. Matt from the conversation for a second. I'm just really dying for someone to level with me about what is or isn't happening in China because people having a conversation about the word genocide is at this point, where ethnic persecution or camps are comparing it to Nazi Germany and all this, at this point is obscuring what is a potential reality of a kind of persecution that is bad enough that we should be talking about it or at least acknowledging it the same way that I would be pissed off if someone didn't want to talk about our criminal justice crisis just because it doesn't legally fall under whatever UN definition of what a genocide is or what a labor camp is or whatever else. It's still a, it's still a problem. Right, and I think, like, to to defend Matt for a second here, his concern or his problem is that there is some camp of people who, because of the fights on the high level about how to use these various terms that have various like kind of international law implications, because they don't believe it's X, Y, and Z, are unwilling to acknowledge that there's any wrongdoing going on within the context of a country. And for me, from the, an outsider view, who doesn't know anything from jump. I would hate to be in a position where I'm basically saying China is doing no wrong because I've agreed to an argument that China isn't maybe doing something that I would think is accurately described as Nazi Germany or a uh, uh, labor camp or a genocide. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure. But but I, in terms of the question about like, is, you know, is there something going wrong in Xinjiang that we should be talking about. I think that we need to, what really needs to be focused on here is that, you know, Xinjiang, first of all, is in China. And the, I think that there is a lot that we can actually deduce and, and understand about what's happening there that points to the fact that Actually, there isn't – for me, I can say 100% that I don't believe that there's ethnic persecution going on against Uyghurs in, Ch- in China because of the way that lives have improved and because there hasn't been definitive proof of the persecution that everyone is talking about. There was a coordinated government response to a legitimate problem of terrorism in the country in that region. But not just in that region. I mean, these attacks were happening in Beijing. They're happening in other places too, but they were centered in Xinjiang 
because, of course, of its geostrategic location. And we have to also factor in imperialism here. The United States has been waging a propaganda war about Xinjiang because there are very specific designs uh, relating to that part of China. Xinjiang is on the westernmost part of China, and it is really the exit point, or we could say the entry point, of China's Belt and Road Initiative, this huge trillion-plus-dollar infrastructure development plan that China has agreements with over 140 countries, uh, and it's Xinjiang where a lot of the land routes, a lot of the energy, a lot of the resources are going to be going from Xinjiang, are, are going from Xinjiang to places like Pakistan, etc. And the United States, Afghanistan, the United States wants to cut off any possibility for that to succeed. So Xinjiang is a huge component. And the United States has been supporting separatism there with millions of dollars. Not not necessarily there because a lot of the separatists end up in D.C. for national endowment uh, democracy think tanks. But the United States has been pouring millions of dollars into these groups to promote these narratives, which are propaganda. So I think that, to me, is the biggest problem here is that we talk about Xinjiang as if it can have any equivalency to what's going on anywhere else and that we have to think of something is going wrong there. But for me, it's about we're being lied to. I mean, it reminds me of WMD's Iraq. It reminds me of a lot of this war propaganda. But, but Daniel, let's take that example. If somebody says to me, there's no WMDs in Iraq, totes my goats. If somebody says because there's no WMDs in, in Iraq and we're being lied to, there's no there's no, a human rights abuse has never happened in Iraq. Well, then I'm like, well, what the hell are you talking about? That's insane. I can guarantee you with 100 percent certainty that you name a country that's human rights abuses. You know what I mean? It, it, it's it's become such an overreach as to become suspicious in the other direction. Why? Like, like I, I come if, if you were making an argument that says yes, there is some religious persecution. In an ethnic persecution uh, in China, and that the Uyghurs are a persecuted minority the same way that you could describe black people in America or Hispanic people in America or Muslim people in France or whatever as persecuted minorities. Okay. However, it, it doesn't rise to the level of genocide, and the reason that people are emphasizing this is because of whatever political motives. The same way. That Russia, one of the bot farms that, that was like trying to influence the 2016 election, LOL, is Russian saying, you know, you know, putting out messaging about how bad America is to black people. To which my response was, okay, sure, they're trying to influence the election, but it's true. So if America wants to deal with it, they just got to address the trueness of it. Do you know what I mean? So if, if people are trying to manipulate this for political reasons, but also it's true – then I think I, I would hate to say because I want to resist Russia, I'm going to pretend that anti-black discrimination doesn't exist. No. If you want to resist Russia, you cure the anti-black discrimination. You address it. And I can understand that people are trying to politically ma- manipulate a circumstance that's happening with Uyghurs, which, again, I have no idea what's happening there. I literally have not even Googled the issue at this point, you know, beyond a super, really superficial Google. But it does seem to me like I, I just want to know from you, I want an honest reckoning. Is there a little bit of a there there that we should care about because we are humanists and we care about what's happening to people in the world, even though we are cognizant of how that reality, however big or small it is, is being weaponized for political ends? 
That, that's what I, I just don't know the answer to that. I would like some clarity mm. on that. Well, for me, I think that the best thing that uh, people, progressives, leftists in the United States or in the Western world, particularly, what they can do to, if they wanted to really help the Uyghurs, is that they could oppose the sanctions that the Biden administration has put on uh, things like the cotton industry, like solar, the solar panel industry out there, because that is really, I mean, legitimately hurting the livelihoods of, of Uyghurs because it ends up that there has to be, you know, cutbacks in those kind of investments and that inevitably hurts jobs. So, you know, I think for me, uh, there is, I think there's a political conversation we have to have in terms of how we strategize about U.S. foreign policy and how we talk about countries that are targeted by U.S. foreign policy, especially when we don't have necessarily 100% of the facts. Like, for example, I've studied a lot about China, and I know that China has come from a place where it felt it needed to open up its economy and it needed to absorb the technical know-how of capitalism and in China, although many people think this isn't the case, China is very understanding and acknowledges, even its leadership acknowledges a lot of the issues with that income inequality, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the, the economic issues that can come with that. But I think when it comes to chi- like China, if we're thinking about a country where we are having a hard time finding the answers. And for me, I mean, I can say this with certainty. I think that China has actually made incredible progress in the area of, uh, you know, addressing ethnic divisions. There's 56 ethnic groups in China, and all of them for them live in very similar conditions comparatively. So that is, I think, a historical feat that should be marveled at, given the situation in the world, especially in the Western world, where that's just not the case. But I think when we're talking about countries that are targeted by imperialism, targeted by U.S. militarism, and we know that there's all this propaganda, we can't just say it's like the same as, for example, uh, criticizing Saudi Arabia or even criticizing someone like Saddam Hussein, who is a very contradictory figure and certainly did not <laughs> deserve a regime change. But we know he, he played a negative role for example, in the Iraq-Iran war and did have chemical weapons at some point given to him by the United States. You know, we, we know these things. But with China, if 99.9% of it is propaganda and it's meant to fuel what I think is this – what well, I know is this dangerous core war, but, I, but what I think is a completely undercover topic is this huge militarization. We're talking about Ukraine and Russia all the time and NATO expansion. But we're not talking about how more than half the military budget is basically going to militarizing Asia and the Pacific to target China. And that means we can't get any nice things in the United States. And so we I, – I think when it comes to criticizing countries around the world that are targeted by imperialism, we have to – I think we have to be very careful in the sense that we have to just know – we have to have the facts straight. And even if we have 100% of the facts straight, we have to begin to see, is the U.S. exploiting this or are they just making things up? Because with Xinjiang, it's essentially made up. And, it, and it's infuriating to me because it has real consequences. 
economically, it's hurt weaker people because of what the U.S. sanctions have done. And it also creates this atmosphere of war, which no one needs. And, uh, you know, it doesn't help China, it doesn't help the United States, and it doesn't help the world. So, so I think that's where, you know, that's where I, I, I think we need to look at this as a political question of how do we strategize about where we place our focus on, especially on questions that are so propagandized and so distorted by damn near everybody. But it starts at the top with the Western media, the corporate media, uh, the bipartisan consensus on war. And then it really drifts to really the, the entire uh, polity in the United States, left to right. And it's to build this consensus against China when what we really need to do is build a consensus against corporate power, greed, imperialism, etc. And is some of that corporate power and greed and imperialism in, in China to the to the to the reason why I had Matt on to begin with um, the question about um, Elon Musk and his kind of willingness to capitulate to whatever the CCP says, including um, on speech issues in order to continue to profit enormously from being able to build cars and whatever else, I guess, in China, you know. The same way I said to Matt, you can't make this a Chinese problem when it's the West who's exploiting its ability to, you know, exploit cheap labor in China. You can't say that that's a reason why China is, is bad without also saying that's a reason America is bad. And I would also say the same thing in reverse. No? Sorry about that. I was on mute. Um, well... When it comes to the Elon Musk question, I mean, I think that this is very interesting because I think that, yes, Elon Musk does have an economic relationship in China. I mean, there's a fact, there's a big factory there. Let me, let me read this um, real quick before you finish your answer. Cause I, I, I keep, I keep quote, I keep talking about what he said, but let me just quote him directly. Cause we didn't even get to this in the episode. This is from um, Matt's late April article about Musk and China. Um, Though there are risky borrowing choices involved in this buyout, I do not really worry about making Twitter profitable enough to service its debts. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Let's skip that. But Musk's dependency on the Chinese government is overwhelming and personal to the point where he nearly equaled Zuckerberg in cringeworthy statements. While insulting U.S. politicians and regulators, he operates as a mascot for Chinese society. And at Chinese conferences says things like, quote, China rocks and, quote, I love China in return for huge subsidies. Unlike Zuckerberg, Musk's flattery delivered, but that's because he had something they wanted, which is battery space and electric vehicle technology. Indeed, there are reasons to see Musk's empire of SpaceX, Tesla, and Starlink as problematic from a competition standpoint. In return for building out the Chinese electric vehicle ecosystem, Chinese government essentially gave Musk a free factory in Shanghai, as well as access to their market. Both China and Musk have benefited from this arrangement with Tesla generating, quote, more than a quarter of its total revenue from China, or about $13.8 billion, end quote. According to the Wall Street Journal, the firm sold more than 470,000 cars made at its Shanghai factory last year. Data from the Chinese Passenger Car Association showed Tesla said it delivered more than uh, 936,000 vehicles globally in 2021. 
Yeah. Um, you know, look, Tesla has a monopoly on electric vehicle production. And Matt Stoller isn't wrong here. China does invest heavily. And uh, while I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a big factory and it's certainly, and certainly Tesla's sales are high in China. Uh, and, and one of the reasons for that is that China actually invests in renewable energy. Like they want electric vehicles on the road. I mean, when I was there, streets are very quiet because the vast majority of vehicles on the road at any given time and a hundred percent of buses are electric in China. So there is a huge investment there and the government subsidizes it. That's also true. Now what's also true is that the United States could do that if they want to, that Elon Musk has this monopoly. Tesla is a monopoly. It has a monopoly on the industry and it's going to go where the investment is And the United States is not investing in this and they're not paying for it. They're not going to offer government subsidies for it. So for me, I think that the argument is a poor one because China is doing what I think is possible in this moment, which is attempting to invest in renewables where they exist. And then I know Matt Stoller thinks this is a bad thing and a lot of uh, uh, people think this is a bad thing, but I think this is actually just a logical thing if you're a country trying to develop. Uh, China requires that any foreign corporation, foreign investor who comes in, share technology, share technical know-how, because China needs guarantees that their market is not going to be consumed by an imbalance of power relationships like what happens all across the world. Any country that's trying to be sovereign is not going to let, let foreign investors control and dictate the economic situation, economic system, but that's what happens in so many places. And, and so what China does is it says, yes, we will invest in uh, Tesla. We will let uh, Tesla, we will subsidize electric vehicles, but we're also going to learn how to do it ourselves. And that's, and that's also happening. So I think it's a, I've always found that argument about, you know, sharing technology and all of that as being a bad thing. You know, I think that's just a smart thing if you're going to be a sovereign country that's trying to develop a sovereign economy. You're not going to let a corporation have all of, uh, you know, all of the tools of to the trade without you getting something in return. It's not just you're going to just sell us things and we're going to buy them from you. No, it's China wants to build them, build those things, and they are. And so I think in terms of uh, this question of electric vehicles and and investment in China that Elon Musk has made it's it's really interesting because I, you know I've spoken to many people in China because I've always wanted to know this about like because back in the early 2000s this was a huge deal the factories in general industrialization and working conditions and they were much poorer back then but wages have risen significantly ever since. And you know, I ask people, I'm like, hey, do you think, um, you know, what are conditions like in the factories? And actually, a lot of people want these factory jobs, like what Tesla provides in Shanghai, because they, yeah, but they pay they, a lot, there's housing. You, and but then, you have to hear yourself. That sounds exactly what the Amazon people say about the folks in Alabama who want to work for $15 minimum wage, because that's double the minimum wage. It's $15 wage, because it's double the minimum wage in Alabama. 
But that, that, you know, it being better than the alternative doesn't mean it's actually a living wage, that conditions are good, that it's worth, the money is worth, that the conditions that people are working in. You know what I mean? Sure. I know what you mean, but I think the situation is different. You know, it, it, for example, I think the average salary in the Shanghai factory in, in China is something like, uh, what is it? Like thirteen thousand dollars a year. So in RMB, that's something like ninety thousand RMB. Plus, there's benefits and you know, there's the housing fund, there's meals. It's a different situation. And there's you know, it's a different situation, right? Than in the United States, where if you're making fifteen dollars an hour, you got to pay rent. You gotta. You're not. You're not getting meals. You're not getting certain benefits. You know, I think it's a different situation. But nonetheless, the fact that China is subsidizing electric vehicles, I think, is the big thing here. If if the United States, if regulators, if uh, people like Matt Solar re- were going to call for something here, it would be that, okay, if you want people who, are, who have monopolies over, uh, you know, and I do believe that. People like Elon Musk, uh, this is where me and Matt Sola would agree. I do think they need to be broken up, right? I do think monopolies should be broken up. But if you want to start that process, I think a big thing is the U.S. government should be subsidizing electric vehicle production and consumption, right? Subsidizing renewable energy. I think that would solve a lot of problems. So I I'm I hear that Matt is in the chat and I want to bring him up, but I'm having trouble finding him because too many of your parents named you Matt. Like I need you to – this is a crisis – that is legitimate and undisputed. There are too many mats in America. I'm going to also go out on a limb and say there's too many Bens and Davids. And some of you need to make different choices if and when you have offspring. While I find him, I'm going to go ahead and bring Shelly up and let her ask. Shelly, you can ask about anything you want to ask about. Hey, Brie. How are you? I am doing very well. A little lit, but I'm coming down off my tequila high. How are you doing? Same girl, but it's not so <laughs> <laughs> right there with you. Well, I I didn't necessarily have a question. I was just extremely, and actually I'm glad that Matt's here, um, if he is, because I yes. thought his comments were very inflammatory and very not rooted in any type of historical understanding. Um, I don't remember the Jews in Germany beheading people in train stations and driving car bombs into town squares. I just don't remember it. And that still wouldn't have been a reason to have concentration camps. Wait, I'm sorry. Just help me, help me understand, Shelly, who, who, who in this analogy is, um, beheading people and driving people into... Driving cars into trains. The Jews. No, no, no. But who are, you're saying that the Jews the didn't Uyghurs. do that, but who did? So the accusation the is that the, the Uyghurs have been viol- yes. uh, been doing terrorisms. Okay. Yes. Danny, what, I mean, I just, some, I know. Okay. I'm just saying there are some sections. It is not the majority of the Uyghurs. It is a radical type. It's kind of the same thing we've talked about with Ukraine. It's not the majority of the Uyghur population, but there is a radical element to it that has done some dangerous things, has really impacted people's lives in China 
and has committed terroristic acts. And I would like to say that China didn't go through and carpet bomb Xinjiang. They provided education, work training, and they were trying to alleviate poverty and radicalism in that area. And as much as I might disagree with some of their tactics, or I might think that they, they impinge on Uyghur's freedom, and there might be some elements that we can contest and we can talk about, I think it's much better that we didn't bomb the fuck out of them. Or, or that China didn't. Because that's all how right, we so- handle terrorism. So let's, I want, I want Danny to respond to that directly, but I also want to welcome Matt up to the stage. Thank you so much. I feel like what an embarrassment of riches to get him back on the Colin episode to talk directly well, to the said, audience. He, he said a lot of things that were really, really ridiculous. Well, he's all right. Okay. All right, Chili. I hear you, but I want to welcome Matt and, 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 and say that I appreciate him coming here. I know it's a hot audience. I know you guys have a lot to say. But first, you got to unmute yourself, Matt, to talk by pressing the microphone in the bottom there's right so hand many, corner. There's so many. There's there's so many feelings. Uh, I, I like I it. know, but Matt 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 Matt's got a thick skin, and I know he can hang, which is why I appreciate him coming here. Matt, hold, welcome. First of all, thank you for coming. Hey, thanks so much, and guys, thank you so much for tolerating listening to me and getting angry about it or not. I appreciate. I appreciate it. I appreciate that. I feel like it's. It's incredibly respectful that you guys were willing to listen to me. So um, anyway, regardless of whether you agree or disagree. So, Well, thank you, Matt. There, we're all going to have a chance to, to speak our piece, but I want Danny to respond specifically uh, to what Shelly just said. Sure. And I want to apologize to everyone else. I probably only have about 15 minutes left in me, but, but I definitely want to engage more. Uh, but with, in terms of what Shelly said, I mean, yeah, I, I think that's to me. I think that's a really good way to put it. it I mean, those that, those are facts. I mean, these things happened. There were thousands of people who were affected by this. People who died. People who, um, you know, people were displaced because of this violence. And you know, it, it, there there were so many ways that China's government could have went about it. And certainly, now I don't think the bombing would have been a possibility on its own territory, uh, nor (laughs) China doesn't have a long history of bombing other countries, let alone itself. But nonetheless, the point stands that China's response to the problem of terrorism has been far more progressive than, I mean, the United States, the West, or or, or, or virtually anywhere else in the world has has done. So, So I definitely appreciate that point. Well, Matt, what do you say to this? What do you, what do you make of this? Well, I mean, I think there's just kind of a, a, a epistemological disagreement here. I don't think there's really much to talk about if you just don't think that there are, you know, there's genocide going on um, that, you know, if you're like, oh, you know, something Danny said earlier where he's like, oh, if we don't import, you know, solar panels by, you know, made with slave labor, then, you know, the slaves won't have jobs anymore. Like, if that's your view, I don't know what there is to talk about. And if your view is, oh, well, you know, there is some terrorism, therefore we're going to, you know, no one's ever been able to define terrorism, but, you know, because China said, the Chinese government said there was terrorism. And, oh, we believe the Chinese government, you know, even though, because, you know, we know, we all governments lie, but Western governments lie, but the Chinese government tells the truth. Um, Then, 
you know, then it justifies, uh, in, you know, enslaving or engaging in sort of cultural genocide against an entire ethnic group. I think that's consistent with the ideology of the of the Chinese um, of the Chinese Communist Party. It's a Leninist Marxist party. They take that seriously. I'm not trying to be critical. They that's what they think. And I think it is it's part of an information control strategy that they use. And it's something I don't agree with. I don't think anybody who who has any sense of human decency uh, would agree with it. But I understand that if your view is that there is this kind of Leninist Marxist um, purposing of information to control and wield power, that you would say these kinds of things. But I don't think there's really a conversation to have because um, because it's just like we don't live in the same sort of factual universe. And um, so that I'm not sure what kind of like so Danny, Danny, what do you, can I respond to that oh, yeah sorry. please what do you what do you make of that kind of slippage because I can I hear I hear Matt's point that says even if on a relativistic matter you know it's if you want to say that it's better it might even be better than the United States if this were in an American context and we were saying you know uh, someone did a terrorism so it's okay that this this was an inflicted upon an entire group an ethnic group of people yeah, it is true that we have responded to terrorism in exactly that way, and that is very bad. We criticize that as leftists here in America. Do you think there's a lower standard that we're implementing for China than we're implementing for the United States? Well, I mean, I think first, you know, it's it, it's it's very convenient and easy to throw out sort of, oh, well, this is what a communist country thinks. So if you subscribe to the same ideology, then... Well, no, no, no. Let's not know, talk about, uh, no one's talking about communism but, or whatever. We're not talking about theories of government, you know, structures of government. We're just talking about, like, is it true? Like, from a factual basis, do you dispute kind of um, Matt's framing of events? That because there has been, you know, to, um, to Shelley's point, acts of terrorism and what have you that are, you know unconscionable, no one would condone anything like that sort, that the response has been perhaps better than the United States response to terrorism. And let's say that, that Shelley's right about it being education and, and these kinds of things, but that there's also some of this other stuff, um, which is not so great. And is it worth acknowledging that the other stuff is not so great, especially if it's meted out in a generalized way on an ethnic basis, as opposed to targeted to the individuals who actually committed a crime? Well, I think we would have to really get at the the facts of the situation. I mean, what Shelley was saying those I mean, those are facts, and and Shelley was just naming a few instances where yeah. this happened, right? And and Shelley was very clear, and and I I definitely just want to back Shelley up here. Very clear, this is a, it was a minority. This is kind of like a, a Wahhabist kind of sect. This uh, this I mean, these these are the same Uyghurs that ended up in Syria. That the U.S., you know, and their partners helped you know, get there, right, to to fight against uh, Bashar al-Assad and the Syrian government is these kinds of forces that indeed were punished in China, but the vast majority of the response, the the real policy response, right? If people are beheading people and stabbing people, any country is going to punish them, right? Right? This was not an ethnic policy. This. Mm. Which just happened to be Uyghurs who were caught up 
in what really was a geopolitical design, right? Uh, really w- was were caught up in this radical fundamentalist kind of ideology that has been sponsored for many, many, many years, uh, indirectly by the United States and directly by many of their partners. And uh, China responded, one, by, yes, criminally prosecuting those who committed violence, and then two, uh, trying to rid of the problem in this very important region for China by actually improving standards of living, uh, which, as Shelley says, in contradistinction with the United States did, let's say, in Iraq, which was to bomb Iraq into the Stone Age and actually create the material basis for groups like ISIS to form. So, yeah, I, I don't think, as you know, to just keep on your point about this not being ideological, I think there's facts to this. And when Matt said this is all ideological, I, I think there's plenty of Reuters reports, there's plenty of mainstream media sources out there that show that this was a problem, and it's no longer a problem since 2016 in China. And uh, this is actually just documented fact. While allegations like Uyghur slave labor have only been documented by very dubious sources connected to the National Endowment for Democracy and other uh, U.S.-backed, really, propaganda mills. Matt? Oh, sure. Go ahead, Shelley. Yeah, because I was just, once again, I just want to go back to the comparison of Nazi Germany. So Matt had stated in his conversation that at first everyone looked at the fascists as the Nazis as a bunch of thugs and they created some concentration camps, you know, but that actually wasn't what happened. There was one group of people that took the Nazis deadly serious, deadly serious. They called out these issues for a long time and they said, these guys are dangerous and they're You have to be careful of them. And it was the German communists that called it out. And it was the social Democrats that kept looking for reformism and electoralism that eventually led to Hitler being placed in power by an electoral system. And I think that if you're going to talk about concentration camps of Jews, then Matt has to answer to that. And he has to explain the failure of social democracy and protecting the population from fascism instead of communists having to explain fascism to social Democrats. Matt. Sorry, one second. I'm, I'm in a car. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm going to, Thank you. I really appreciate your comments, Shelly. Right, um, thank you. I'm going to ask Matt once he's through with the call uh, to, yeah. to, to, to respond to your point. Thanks, Shelly. Matt, please remember to respond to Shelly's point, but I'm going to go ahead and bring Jonathan up while you're getting ready. And also, Danny, I know that you are under the weather and have to go, so don't feel compelled to stay any longer. I mean, your insights are like very worthwhile. We all are so appreciative of you being here, but don't feel compelled. You know, I know you need to get your rest and get better. <laughs> Thanks, thanks. I'll stay on for a few more minutes, but thank you. Well, you know. Okay, okay Jonathan. Now, she, yeah. Can I can I respond? To, so I think it's really interesting. So I I wrote a book on the um, history of, of monopoly power in the 20th century, and I actually mm. I looked at the um, like what did people think of Hitler before he was like you know Hitler, right? 
because um, he was like just a guy for a while. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the Holocaust happened and, you know, he's become the epitome of, of evil because of what happened in the 40s. But what did people think about him when he was just rising to power? And I looked at Congress. And- mm-hmm. Jonathan? He mute- yeah, he muted himself. I can vouch. I read that book. It was oh, one of oh, my favorites, so, actually. Oh, so sorry. Yeah. Yeah, he, I, yeah. Oh, is Matt going to gonna talk again? Okay, I'll be quiet. He's hey, Matt, muted. you're muted. I'm trying to unmute you, but. Matt, oh, Matt, why is, what is, what is happening? Matt, can you unmute yourself? I'm sorry. I don't know. I'm, oh, so there we go. I'm sorry. Okay. I, I'm sorry. My phone kept connecting to my um, Bluetooth in my car. So there we go. I'm being censored by my own company. <laughs> um, no, so you wrote a book uh, about oh, the history of Monopoly. Yeah, no, everyone should recognize I'm an idiot. Um, just, just, to, just to frame it that way. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, and um, what was really interesting is that I think that um, what I found is, is that the, there were two groups of people that understood the danger of Hitler immediately in Congress. And one were, you know, Jews for obvious reasons. And the other one were people in the banking committee who were actually often anti-Semites themselves. Um, not all of them, but like, you know, Fiala Fiala LaGuardia was actually in Congress at the time. And he was not an anti-Semite. But but they were just sort of like, they saw it as a financial problem. So they said um, that the U.S.'s choices after World War I and the, the sort of series of debts that the U.S. had in, had um, imposed on Europe, and then that France and Germany had, or France and England had then turn imposed on uh, Germany, um, were were really causing social destruction, and you know certain things like kind of nascent deindustrialization and austerity, and that that was leading to a, a crisis, and the crisis was going to lead. Matt, you said the crisis is going to lead to, and then you petered out. Can anyone else hear Matt, or is it just me? No, no, he's he's no, he's definitely um. All right, Jonathan, yeah, go ahead and ask your um, ask your unless unless the, he said enough for you for you to respond to, Danny. Go ahead and ask your question, uh, Jonathan. Uh, yeah, I mean, I like I said, I uh, love that book, and I can certainly vouch for uh, that chapter, especially when he went into how you know oligarchs like uh, like Andy Mellon were big fans of uh, of Mussolini. And oh, here, here comes Matt again. Matt, Matt, you're mad glitchy. I can't hear a word you're saying. I mean, I can hear that you're talking. I don't know if you went to a different location or whatever, but wherever you are now, it's not the best. So go ahead, Jonathan. Good luck. Yeah, I don't know if he can hear us. Like, like it, it, it's, yeah. Sorry, it's, it's there, you there know. You go. Right. Yeah, there you go. Okay, go ahead. Somebody else talk. I'm clearly not in a good zone. Oh, um, what? I, I'm, I'm cutting in and out. So why don't you guys talk and I'll just listen for a while and then I'll come back when I'm in a better zone. Okay? I mean, I, we can hear you now if you want to just finish that point. Okay, yeah, I was just going to say, I look to the financial relationships and the industrial relationships, and there's a, there's a relationship. It's like the economic and political elites in the U.S. in the 1920s were totally fine with Mussolini, and they liked him, actually. And I, they didn't like Hitler. He was a little bit too tacky. 
but they did, they despised communism. And I think that we have to look at one of the reasons I use the Nazi analogy for the Chinese Communist Party. It is incendiary, but I also want people to hear and understand what I think they really are about. But I also want people to understand that our, what, what we are doing, what our elites are doing in terms of creating that our sort of similar financial and economic structure is driving a lot of the problems. So I'm not saying, oh, this is a, you know, we need to do regime change or whatever. Like, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think it would work. But I also think that, like, we're, you know, our elites are contributing to the problem. And my goal is to say, let's try to roll back some of the economic choices we've made to actually facilitate what I think the Chinese Communist Party is doing that's really dangerous, both to their own people, but also to, you know, not everybody in China, but like the Uyghurs and a bunch of other groups that are really suffering. Um, but also that's happening, that, that, are, that this, this dynamic between Wall Street and China, what they're doing to us. Um, so that that's kind of what I was going at, and I see strong analogies between, you know, what was happening in the twenties in the U.S. and and Europe, with what's happening now in the U.S. and um, and China. Yeah, we ready for me now? Yeah, I mean, for my part, um, yeah. Like I said, I love that book. Um, you know, I love Matt Stoller, but you know, this is one of those things. Like, uh, you know, I hear, I've heard it come up before, you know, multiple times and, you know, I just kind of like, I've been learning a lot about China lately. And the more I learn, the more I realize I have to learn and you have to have a lot of bandwidth. And one of the things I think Americans are really bad at is recognizing that other countries are as complicated as ours or more so. And China in particular has a very long, very complicated history uh, you know, one of the earliest civilizations out there. And, uh, you know, they like all of it, it to some degree or another is relevant to uh, to today. Like, for instance, I was reading Isabella Weber's book, uh, you know, how China escaped shock therapy. And one of the appalling things I discovered is uh, that, uh, you know, in the last, uh, you know, 40, 50 years uh, in particular, um you know, a lot of the American style Chicago school neoliberal economics have very much infiltrated and come into vogue at the top ranks of the Chinese Communist Party. And they have, impl you know, they have implemented a lot of very neoliberal policies. And, you know, Steve Grumbine did, uh, you know, three episodes on the on the 20th century uh, history of China after the revolution and has done some stuff with Bob Hockett on the Evergrande stuff and some things on the Chinese economy, there is a lot of very complicated stuff going on. And one of the comments I left on the actual episode was, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, I got from that episode with Steve Grumbine was, uh, you know, the, the concept of Chinese nail houses. Okay. Like Google the images of those and like, it really will hit you like a ton of bricks these people are doing major infrastructure projects and they do not have eminent domain. They have greater respect for property rights, individual property rights. If these people will not take a buyout, they build that highway around that house. Okay. They mm -hmm. build that major industrial park around that house. And, you know, these are, you know, they definitely do have a pervasive surveillance state, but then again, like, you know, post Patriot act, ours is starting to look a lot more like theirs. And so I think another thing Americans are not really good at doing is holding fire when they don't have sufficient information to make an informed decision. And this stuff with the Uyghurs in particular, 
you get piecemeal, very, very propagandized, very distorted information coming out of there. And, you know, I like reserving judgment is hard for a lot of people. They want to be like, I need to make a decision. I need to know what's happening. They're not good about putting a pin in it. But Mm -hmm. I think a responsible thing to do, and I, you know, I know Matt's going to disagree with me, is to, you know, hold fire on some of those uh, more severe pronouncements. I do recognize the validity of some of the problems that he's illustrating with, um, you know, the free trade aspects and the cheap labor and, you know, the outsourcing of manufacturing. Like, those are all very real, very complicated problems that need to be dealt with in frankly, a more nuanced way than, you know, I I think what he's suggesting respectfully, that's my thoughts on it. But um, I'm sure Matt has, uh, you know, thoughts on what I said. Well, Matt, did you put a pin on it? Are you being too rash? Is it possible that you're right, but that we all, generally speaking, are much too ignorant about what's going on in China to say something as aggressive as, you know, we're we're seeing like proto-Nazi Germany? Um, Brianna, sorry, you were cutting out. Were you? What were... Oh, she's sorry. checking the chats again. Hey, um. you caught me. <laughs> sorry. Okay, I was saying, um, Matt, do you think that's right? Do you think that we should all p- put a pin in it because we don't know enough to say whether or not you know it's accurate to say something as strong as uh, we're looking at a proto-Nazi Germany? Well, first of all, we don't have the choice of just sort of with- withholding judgment. We have deep. We have policy choices that we're making all the time. Um, technology transfers we're engaging in, trade you know trade deals we're negotiating. Like you can't just sort of not have an opinion, um, and or at least in the as a citizen or a policy you know in, in the, the policy world, you have to do things. And so, I don't think that it's practical to just say, well, we can withhold judgment. Like you have to have, you have to act on a constant basis, the most, probably the most important geopolitical relationship that the U S has. Okay. But like having an opinion and that opinion being, Hey guys, it's the new Nazis are a little bit of a different thing though, Matt. And like you, you said it yourself, you're kind of being intentionally provocative because you want people to wrestle with how serious the situation is in your mind. But isn't that a kind of just a kind of a Godwin's law-ish kind of um, troll-ish no, move I think by your mission? I think they are Nazis. I really do. I think they, they are putting ethnic groups in concentration camps and using slave labor and censoring people all over the world. And they are bent on world domination. Like, I'm sorry that people think that it's offensive to say that about another country, but it's really obvious that it's true. And there's. Well, what's what's so obvious? Matt, walk us us through this because. What what is the evidence? I'm not mad at you. I'm not arguing with you. I'm just asking you to tell us what the evidence is because, you know, some earlier guests and Danny are saying that there is isn't concrete evidence of these concentration camps existing and this actually happening. I'm not going to argue with Holocaust deniers. I'm just not going to do it. Like I just Holocaust think deniers. Okay, like, but, but Matt, ridiculous. you know, but Matt, sorry, Matt, all due hang on, hang on. A okay, all due respect. Danny doesn't know what he's talking about. Danny, all right. But Matt, but wait a minute. No, Matt. The, the easiest let, way for you to do this. Look, look I disagree with you a lot, Matt. But I never said you didn't know what you were talking about. But I know you don't know what you're talking about China. Matt and Danny. Matt and Danny. Don't make me. Don't, ma- don't make me force mute. I'm going to force start force muting people in a second. So let me say this. 
Norm Finkelstein, whose parents were Holocaust survivors, came on this show, and he is not anybody. He doesn't represent the Jews or anything. But his personal position is that to to fight misinformation and all this shit that's going on in the world, he thinks that people should be actually willing to fight Holocaust uh, deniers because we live in a world where people don't know how to argue against them because they're never forced to because that kind of a conversation is basically scrubbed from the Internet. Now, people can feel how they want to feel about Norm Finkelstein, and I highly suggest you go back and listen to that episode because it was bomb and he's terrific. However, I don't think that we're in a place with whatever's happening um, to the Uyghurs with where we are with Holocaust deniers in terms of the number of facts that have been elucidated out on the page. Like any of us can get in a plane means permitting and go and see Auschwitz. We could all see and have seen dozens and hundreds of pictures of skeletal starving human beings at concentration camps and rows and rows of skulls and humans who were the descendants of those people who talk about the loved ones that were there one day and not there the next. This is not the same thing. So I'm, I'm just asking you, I'm not doing this in a challenging, provocative way, Matt. I'm not saying I disbelieve you. I'm just asking Look, you, what is the evidence okay, that makes so, you so, so confident so, about the fact that these, how, these camps exist? Okay. So let me just, I was listening to what Danny had to say. And Danny was saying things that were obviously untrue. Like, for example, and this is not about Xinjiang. It's just something that anybody can easily fact check. He said Tesla is a monopoly. Okay, Tesla is not a monopoly. It's just not. There are a lot of different electric car makers. And so, you know, and he said a number of things like that. Like the U.S. doesn't subsidize its electric vehicle industry. Tesla made more money on on selling, you know, tax credits for electric vehicles, which is basically a government, which is a government subsidy, than it did from actually but, but just But Matt, selling, what about with um, respect to... Well, but, but, second, let, but the you know weaker what, stuff. Me, no, no, don't say... I'm making a point here. If you just, like, make things up, like, just sort of say... Just make things up, which is what he was doing, right? Because he doesn't know what he's talking about. He just makes things up about that. Then why would you see any credibility in the other area? And that, that's kind of the broad point. It's like, if I can tell... That he's just saying things that are blatantly untrue, so because he, he wants to have an opinion about something, then why would I trust him in any other area? Like you have to be careful about okay, the fact. Danny, I'm gonna let you in in a second. I'm gonna let you in. I'm gonna let you in, Danny. But Matt, I just want to say there's there is a difference, and Danny will clarify what he meant. But there is a difference between getting something wrong and making something up. I got the date of Roe v. Wade wrong the other day, and a bunch of people were mad at me. Like, I got it off by a year. Like, sometimes people just make mistakes. And you are an expert at monopolies, and I don't expect anyone to be able to out-monopoly knowledge you. You know, but I what I was really asking about, I, I, I will frankly defer well, to you over Danny about what, monopoly what, stuff, what, but I'm asking about this weaker stuff, the genocide stuff. That's the claim that's well, okay, got so, so many I people. Mean, thing, look, go to, I haven't been to Xinjiang, right? All right. I just read, you know, in, in, you know, most of the Western press, that's where I get my information, right? And they're all, they all sort of report that there's, you know, that there's genocide going on. And, you know, I like, you read stories about people who are in the U.S. who, you know, are Uyghurs and they say that their families are getting harassed. You see tremendous amounts of, of, of fear. You have, you know, there's a longstanding, you know, anger about Tibet. Like it's consistent, you know, the, it's consistent with, you know, Chinese, like with recent Chinese history. It's consistent with, um, you know, with, with the aims of what the, that the CCP talks about and all of their terrorist, anti-terrorist rhetoric sounds exactly like what you would do if you were engaged in genocide. So I find that persuasive. But I haven't been to Xinjiang, and I don't know, like, 
I haven't seen the concentration camps. I've seen the satellite pictures that they put in the newspapers. And if you believe that everything that we see is a lie, then, you know, there's no there's no way to actually have a discussion about what is true is what is not if you believe that everything that is reported is a lie. So that's why I'm saying this is not really worth having a conversation about, you know, the, the, the factual basis here, because anything that I say is just going to they're just going to say, oh, that's just Western propaganda. So I picked something that wasn't Western propaganda, which is very simple, which is is Tesla a monopoly. And it's not. And it's obviously not. And anybody who you know knows anything about any of these industries would say, well, it's, it's not a monopoly. But the fact that Danny just said it instead of just being like, well, it's, it's a big company or it's a powerful company. The fact that he just comes out and says something is obviously not true. So he looks like he knows what he's talking about, I think is a red flag. And I, I you know, I, I just think it's a red flag. I, I would not, I do not subscribe to that kind of way of thinking about the world where you can just say whatever you want. So you sound like, you know what you're talking about. And that's can I jump I in before doing. I leave? Yeah, go ahead, Danny. Last word. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, first of all, I just think, you know, I think we can engage in these disagreements without uh, disrespectful kind of slanders like Holocaust denialism and, and all of this nonsense. Uh, you know, so let me just speak before before I get interrupted. Um, well, for one, the point I was making and okay, let's just scrub the fact that I said that Tesla is a monopoly. It's a powerful company that is owned by one of the most powerful capitalists in the world. Let's just let's just say that. Um, and also, the fact of the matter is, the, the point the electric car industry. Matt. Okay. Okay. All right. The fact of the matter is, is that regardless of how we want to frame it, what is the truth? The truth is that. I've been to China. I've been to Xinjiang. I can tell you there are electric vehicles all over the roads in China. The vast majority of the transport system in China is electric. Uh, you know, in, let's in, exclude trains. In terms of vehicle transportation, the vast majority is electric. Point I was making is that if the United States wanted to solve this problem, it could, uh, with the same rigor as China, actually compete and put electric vehicles on the road and uh, support them the way they do in China. For example, in China, in Beijing, for example, you can't get a conventional vehicle in Beijing anymore. You can't. It's illegal. You can't do it. You have to get electric. In Shanghai, you got to pay for some extremely expensive license plate that's like the same amount as another car. So you're not going to do that. You're going to get an electric vehicle. The point is, is that was the point that I was making. But to just try to discredit everything that I was saying about China when there are some obvious uh, irrefutable facts that I, I was discussing. One is that the propaganda about Xinjiang is just that, is propaganda. Matt, yourself, you could not cite a single source that's credible on the situation other than Western media says things. And for that matter, I know for a fact that how can I trust anything Matt says when I know that he said things like, oh, the United States has 185 bases around the world, military bases around the but that's not hegemonic. The United States, the, all those countries want those bases, right? So if we're going to talk about disagreements and credibility, I think we have to be uh, – we have to be careful about these kind of slanders because I could say the same thing about you. But the point that I was making about China is that uh, if the United States really wanted to uh, resolve 
any kind of, first of all, I think first and foremost, peace is the only way to get things done. And right now the United States is engaged in a new Cold War. And all this propaganda about Xinjiang calling China Nazis, if the United States, which a lot of you know corporations backed Nazis uh, during the, the uh, 20th century and the buildup to the Second World War, that's true. But they were doing that against the Soviet Union. I don't. This comparison of the U.S. investing in China as being comparable, it just doesn't make any sense. Is the U.S. doing that against itself? The problem is that our elites are the problem. The U.S. elites are the problem. And it really is jingoism, xenophobia that drives this idea that China – we don't say this about Bangladesh. We don't say this about any other place that the United States invests in. But we say it about China because – there is this quote-unquote China threat uh, narrative. There is this anti-China propaganda being spread. And I think that needs to be countered. And, and so I'll just leave it at that because for me, that's my primary purpose as a journalist, as an analyst, is to do that because I myself come from a family that actually did experience a genocide. The U.S. committed genocide in Vietnam. They killed three million people. I myself have history and legacy in that region. I know, you know, I've been to China. I have many sources on the ground. I, I just don't understand where this, this, like, oh, you're just making up claims doesn't apply to you, Matt. So I'll just say that. But uh, thank you so much, Brianna, for having me on. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you, Danny, for volunteering to come so last minute. I appreciate you, Matt, for coming and, you know, being willing to talk to people who are obviously ideologically disaligned. Not very many people will do that. And frankly, I've gotten more clarity out of this exchange than I have in Googling a bunch of articles and reading, you know, Twitter spats between people on this issue. So I want to really commend both of you gentlemen for submitting to this. Whoever wants to hang around, hang around. I'm going to keep taking questions. Thank you, Jonathan. The queue is long. And I know people are itching to say things. I always appreciate your commentary on Patreon and elsewhere. David, unmute yourself. Feel free to ask a question. Danny's out. But Matt, don't feel any pressure to hang around. But if you want to keep staying and answering questions with me, I appreciate it. David, what's on your mind this evening? Yeah, hey, th thanks, Bree, for, for taking my call. Um, I... I got a. I have a, a couple things, uh, a couple thoughts uh, to share on all this because there's there's quite a bit uh, going on here. Um, one is is uh, Matt is someone who I really respect, but but I, I do have to say I, I think it's not appropriate or productive to compare Nazi Germany even the precursor to Nazi Germany to what's going on in China right now. And, and I say that as someone who I think is personally very critical of China and, and the Chinese uh, government, but the, the two things are not the same. Um, I, another thing I would say too is um, there was a comment made about, you know, Jews not bombing things in, you know, during the Holocaust, which is, also actually not true. Um, I mean, they, there were, there was quite a bit of resistance. Um, that not that Jews were instigating things, but that they were fighting against subjugation and Germany did use that sort of resistance and the violence that went along with it as 
more excuse to continue with their plans. Um, I, I'm a little bit sorry, unfortunately, that I missed Danny. because um, I wanted to, to pose to him. Um, one of my concerns about following what's been going on with Xinjiang is that um, there's, there is a bit that we know for sure because it's been confirmed by the Chinese government. Um, you know, and some of the stuff that would otherwise be negative, I don't know why they would say. So, you know, when they confirm that there are centers that they are pushing people towards and that uh, they are looking at the weaker population as being dangerous, um, that I find concerning. I mean, China themselves has referred to these places as re-education centers, which is very concerning. And there's not a lot of sight on what actually goes on on the inside. We can just see the outsides. Um, and, and I'd also like to, to say that the, what he posed with the quality of life going up is not mutually exclusive with trying to, uh, to crush a culture, um, which is a very serious thing, uh, which is, you know, I believe what the accusations of genocide are uh, right now. It's not that they're killing people. Um, it's that they're trying to eradicate a culture and a, a language and a people, mm. you know, but like not, not like the actual people, but the, but they, but, but their history. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like, you know, putting Native American kids in those schools where they have to dress in Western clothes and not learn their native languages and cut their hair and all that. Or, right. You know, yeah. Same with slaves, African slaves. Yes. Although both of those seem to be, you know, quite a bit more brutal than what China's been accused of. So again, I, I don't want to tie it too closely to that because there were some real violence and abuse that we know went along with both of those systems. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, um, one of the things that's really concerned me in this conversation is there's been a lot of talk from, there's been a lot of equivalencies that have been tried to be made between different governments and different historical events. Um, and that probably shouldn't. Um, yeah. Is this even a conversation? Like if, if nobody made any equivalent type statements, if, if, if everyone was just saying plain statements, like I don't care for what's happening in China or I don't care for what's happening in America, this thing that's happened is bad. That thing that happened is bad. And none of it was like relativistic. Would this even be an argument? Yes. I, I think that the, that the comparisons actually derail any sort of conversation that we could be having. Well, my mother uh, always yeah. said comparisons are odious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just gotta be, you know, you gotta, you, you have to keep it in, in check and you also have to think about how other people are going to receive it regardless of what you mean by it. Um, Every genocide is its own special snowflake. 
Well, it, yeah, it absolutely is. <laughs> um, I mean, they're all well, horrific. Matt, can you, can you, what is the definition? This, again, I don't mean this in a challenging way. I just mean it, like, I'm really just curious. What is the definition of genocide that you're working off of? And then how do you substantiate it, given that when asked about this before, you mentioned these satellite pictures that are supposed to be of concentration camps, and they very well may be, may well be, again, I don't know shit from chat, but, you know, also an aerial picture of, like, an enclosed area or whatever, it's hard for me to believe that that is like dispositive necessarily because every aerial picture of everything looks kind of the same. So, you know, what, what is first, first, what is the definition of genocide that you're working off of here right now? I don't mean like, I'm not expecting you to be encyclopedia Britannica, but like, what do you have in mind when you say genocide? Well, I mean, I think, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. The idea, the, genocide, I guess, is the attempt to wipe a culture off the map. Uh, I think there's a legal definition, but I forgot what it is. So specifically um, the culture as opposed to the people. So it's not like this number of people dead is in your mind, but yeah, kind they're, of they're, a, not, a, they're not masked. They're not like death camps. I don't think. I mean, obviously they kill people. But, okay. you know, they're, they're not, but they but like not again, Nazi Germany didn't start killing Jews on mass. Like it wasn't a liquidation event until kind of I don't know, 1940 or so. So are you um, saying you anticipate, like, this? you anticipate them starting to do math? No, no I don't know what's going to happen. I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I, I do think that, like, let me make an argument for analogies and comparisons. First of all, I think everybody... I, I want you, I really want you to do that, Matt, but I just want to take this this one moment I, to say, I think that part of why people are bristling about the Nazi analogy is that as bad as cultural genocide is, and it is bad, the thing that is most galling to most people about the Holocaust is the 6 million dead human beings, the 6 million dead Jews. So, I mean, I, you know, I would say for, 12 absent million, that, 12 million, 50 million, like this is about, not... When, when people talk about people, fascism... In total. In, the, in, in people, in, yeah, okay. In the, in the, you know, in the 30s, they used to talk about fascism and Nazism, and they would distinguish them because fascism was what was going on in Italy and Nazism was what was going on in Germany. Um, and I guess, you know, look... The reality is, I think people don't want to confront the idea that this is a this is a Nazi-style government because it's too scary. I don't think it has anything to do with nuance. I don't think it has anything to do with, you know, it's just people want to stick their head in the sand because if it is actually is true that what all, you know, a bunch of these human rights groups say and what all, you know, all these legislatures around the world and all, you know, you know, it, it, and it, the fact that China is so aggressive about censoring people all over the world. If, if it's actually true that China is an authoritarian expansionist threat that actually wants to impose a different way of seeing the world that does not involve human rights, that does not involve free speech, um, and that does involve either cultural or actual genocide when they feel it's to their advantage, um, that is too scary to think about. Okay, okay but, but Matt, scary to uh, but what you just said, stop, the idea of... I'm, I'm trying to finish what I'm having to say. Like... <laughs> It is a scary thing. It is incredibly scary, and it's not obvious what to do about it. But the fact that it's really scary doesn't mean you should just deny it under the guise of saying, oh, we should be more nuanced. And I, I also think that like, it's, it's really clear that China has a ton of money out there spending on people to get them to, to like, 
say that this stuff doesn't doesn't happen. And, you know, and and I, I don't think that they we should treat people who believe there is no genocide with respect. I don't think it's a respectable position. I think it's abhorrent. And I'm not going to be shy about that. And I don't think that we should be treating people who who are spreading these kinds of ideas with any sort of respect. I don't think it's respectful. I think the, the respectful thing to do okay. is to take the problem of genocide seriously. And I just don't see that happening. Among we, we are all us. here, Matt, because we want to take the problem seriously. But unfortunately for you, I, potentially, I, I, in the context of this podcast, we are going to all treat each other here respectfully as a condition of having a productive discourse. And I think that we can all I, manage no, that. Not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not okay with civility in the face of somebody who's, who's going to say that there's no genocide and, and sort of say, oh, well, I don't remember the Jews being all, you know, hostile. And, you know, it's totally different than, than the, I mean, that's a really offensive thing to say. It's offensive to the memory of what happened during World War II. It's also offensive to what, you know, to the idea of human rights itself. And I take that really seriously. And I'm not going to be shy about that. And I'm not going to be polite about it. And I don't think people should be shy or polite about it just because it's scary not to be. Well, Matt, when I, I enter, sorry, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, David. Yeah, sorry. What, what I was going to say is, is I actually, uh, I actually agree with you quite a bit on, on most of what you said, because uh, I, I agree with you on the definition of genocide, uh, that it does include the culture, that it's not just killing people. And I actually agree with you that that does seem to be what China's doing right now. And it's a problem and it's something that we should be discussing. I also think that China is poses a geopolitical threat right now for a variety of reasons that you've gone over. But I, I still don't feel like the connection to the Nazis is appropriate or helpful. They're, they're, they're their own thing. And what they're doing in a lot of cases, I think is heinous, but it is it is hard to compare any regime to the Nazis without the direct comparison of six million Jews executed and six million other people. Yeah, that's that's the fundamental point. Like I can sit here and say, let's say there's some terrible, fascistic, horrible, genociding group that emerges in uh, Switzerland. I'm just making things up now. And it turns out they're really, really, really well dressed. They have designers designing all of their little military outfits and they drive bang in cars. And I decide to say this is a this is these people are like the Nazis, even if they're just like not that bad. I know I started out this analogy differently, but let's pretend they're just not that bad. It's just a new regime that will do. Well, technically, the Nazis had Helmut Lang or whoever. Like, that's not Helmut Lang, but had some like excellent, well-designed trench coats and all of that shit, right? And so technically I'm right. It's like that you can pick any respect of someone's regime, including substantive, terrible things that they do, that they are like them. But when the thing they're most known for is of the level and the gravity of the mass extermination of people that happened in the context of the Holocaust, it does feel like, I'm sorry, it does feel like it cheapens a little bit when it's unnecessary to make the argument that something is really, 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 really bad. And you can like reject that choice and say that you don't care what the rhetorical impact of your words are, but it seems like we're spending a lot of time arguing about nothing because at this point, I think we all understand what you mean, Matt, and many people on this call don't even disagree with you in your characterization of what's going on in China. They are just all hung up on this use of words. And I, at a certain point, I just don't understand the commitment to the words when you you obviously have a great deal of respect and, you know, 
you know, re- you know, reverence in the right word, but like you are humbled by what happened in the Holocaust. You have no interest in diminishing what happened in the Holocaust. You aren't even claiming that you necessarily believe that a genocide of that magnitude, a, a mass murder event of that mad- magnitude is what's on the, on the horizon in China, but you think the precipitating events are similar. Why not just say that instead of using a word that you know is going to recall mass graves and gas chambers and Auschwitz and all of the horrible imagery and tragedy that's associated with the Holocaust? Because I don't believe that we should take the past as sacred and never to be repeated. I don't think the Holocaust was a fake story that we should never bring up. I think it was real and I think it could be repeated. And I'm like thinking, well, we all think that. No, we don't. I think it's like it's to say, well, we can't talk about it, about the very possibility. We can't make analogies that this might happen. But you said you don't so think so destructive and horrible to even imagine that. And it's like, no, these were people well, that's not who what did, we're saying, did Matt. in Germany, and you know, they did it. But many of them probably were just like bureaucrats going along, just doing whatever their bosses said, right? And this is like a very, and this is a, like mass slaughters happen in history. Like they're not that Holocaust was one of them, but they happen a lot. And this is something that we have to be aware is like a pretty common thing, and. So I am being respectful of the deep capacity for institutional malevolence on the part of human beings. But, but, but Matt, you it's said weird. it's not that weird to imagine this happening again. And I think I, but Matt, idea- you're the one that said, Matt, I'm sorry, you're the one that said that you're not saying that China is about to do a Holocaust. You're the one who said that. I didn't say that. I'm not offering anything up because I have been very clear through this whole conversation. I don't know anything about anything, and I'm not making any prescriptions about anything. I asked you, and you're the one that responded and said that you're not saying this because you think that a genocide is on the horizon, like a Holocaust type of mass killing event is on the horizon. That was your, you're, you, you're the one that said that. How do I know what's going to happen? I said, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just saying, like, China is setting themselves up pretty well for that. I mean, it's like, it, it, I could easily see this happening. I mean, it, this is not the, 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 an authoritarian government that is immensely secretive, that has no compunction about using absolute power for what they see as useful social purposes. And I am absolutely, it's absolutely true that the Chinese government has drawn, you know, 900 million people out of poverty. And many of the decisions that they've made including a lot of decisions that I think were very stupid on our part, made a lot of sense for the Chinese people and for the Chinese government. But it's a it's an authoritarian, verging on totalitarian regime that is immensely secretive. It's getting worse at a rapid pace. You know, the idea that there would be liberalization was the, sort of this concept that it, like people kind of bought into around the world until around like 2014, 2015. It is really scary what is happening. And the trajectory is in the is in the wrong direction. So I, I, all I'm saying when I, when I, all I'm saying is I don't know what's going to happen and I'm not predicting that there will be mass slaughter. I have no idea, but I'm saying we should take the possibility very, very seriously. And we should also take the possibility that what happened in the 1930s, even after the Nazis came to power, didn't have to happen. Like there were many, many points where we could have choked that off in lots of different ways. And we didn't do it because nobody wanted to contemplate that this kind of thing could happen. And what I'm saying is we should very much contemplate it because I think the institutional structure of the Chinese Communist Party is pretty similar to what we saw. You can maybe say, you know, 
Mussolini if you want, but like Mussolini with ethnic groups in concentration camps, right? If you want to go there, that's fine. But I don't, I think we should take it seriously. And I, I'm not, I'm not like, you know, I can't predict what's going to happen. I have no idea if there's going to be a war, but I will say this, like, oh, the world war was the, the precipitating event for, you know, turning this like highly, highly, you know, attempt like cultural genocide into, into actual mass killing. And like, will there be a war? I don't know. I hope not. I mean, it would be really bad if there were a war and I, I really want to avoid that. But, um, but I, I just, I have no idea what's going to happen. And I just, the, the, the trajectory of the Chinese government is in, it's in a really bad direction. The trajectory of our government is in a bad direction too. But I'm just saying the trajectory of that government is, is way worse in terms of its possible effect on a large group of people. Um, even if the vast majority of Chinese improve, it, you know, their conditions improve, um, it, it, you know, a small percentage in China, it's a lot of people. And so it, it's really scary what could happen. I think we should take that seriously. All right, uh, David, I got to get through some callers because we're almost at two hours and I've talked to, I think, only two people, but I really appreciate you. Thomas, yeah, you're up next. Sorry, David, I got it. I'm moving through. But Thomas, can you make some comments briefly? And I'm going to try to get through some some more people before we wrap tonight. Sure. Hi, Brianna. Um, I, I want to, uh, you know, move on from the question of whether Uyghur genocide is occurring or not. Um, Totes McGoats. Yeah, because I, I don't know. Um <laughs> But I do, I think there's some very interesting, um, I think there's actually some very interesting similarities between Stoller and Haifong that mm-hmm. I think are not sort of being, not being brought out here, right? I mean, I think to some extent or another, they both sort of agree that China's communist in some way or Marxist or something, um, uh. which they aren't, uh, which China isn't. Um, they also sort of both agree that the Marx or Lenin idea of communism is not really possible. And the horizon of our imaginations is a return to sort of petite bourgeois, um, like uh, capitalism, right? Antitrust, right? And maybe more government spending for this thing or another, right? More government investment in, you know, uh, renewables or whatever. Right. Um, and I think that's kind of like gets at the core problem is I think they're both symptomatic of the regression of the left. Um, I, I, every time I call in, I say this, but the regression of the left over the last hundred plus years. Right. That sort of our, our horizons are now just, oh, I don't know, uh, a little antitrust or something. Uh, not that any of it's going to happen, by the way. None of that is going to happen. Like, no matter how hard they push, we're not going back. We're going forward to a new thing. Right? A new kind of capitalism that somehow is going to be even worse than the one before. But we're not going back to, you know, FDR or whatever. All right. Do you have anything to say to that, Matt? Do you think... I mean, I don't know that Matt really holds himself out as a, a leftist. How do you sell, how do you politically identify Matt? I don't know. It depends on the day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, thank I you, mean, Thomas. I, I, that's right. But yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you, Thomas. No, thank but, you. Matt, if you wanted to say more in response, feel free. But I'm going to take uh, Amir's question. Meet yourself, Amir, and let me know what's on your mind. Can you hear me? I can. What's on your mind this evening? Um, well, um, 
first, uh, I, I kind of like the discussion. I don't know if it's accurate, but I guess my I've been following Matt. I, I like, uh, I mean, I've learned a lot on uh, definitely on uh, monopolies and just about how Washington works on the you know corporate corporate aspect of things. And so I don't know if it's accurate, but it seems like maybe. Um, the what was kind of what was, was overlooked sometimes maybe is uh, the fact that you know that was my association I guess with the comparison to Germany is uh, that people were saying stuff along the way and you know trying to raise uh, some alert that something is more than what meets the eye in the beginning and it was easy to you know dismiss it and as somebody that lost many family members and uh, had significant portion of their family in Germany um, at the time. I I know that that was the case. And then we all know that when things got really dicey, you know, even the U.S. didn't let Jews in, you know, like mm-hmm. besides Einstein. So, um, you know, yeah. uh, so if that's the case, but I mean, I'm a little bit surprised to, you know, the, the last comment about the, the information from the Western media and, you know, I think it would be an appropriate thing to visit a place. I mean, it's within, you know, maybe as a BP assignment or <laughs> whatever, you know, like it's a, it would be a appropriate, you know, in order to have such a strong opinion in which I, when, when Matt said it initially, I almost, you know, like my instinct was to take it for at face value because there are a few people that over the years, you know, like enough of what they say is, tracks enough, uh, you know, that you, you have to pick and choose in the reality. I wouldn't mm-hmm. pick and choose the, you know, the corporate media is, you know, somebody, yeah, that's what we automatically can assume the opposite of what you see. That's just, I'm surprised that it's not agreed on already, but, um, <clears throat> you know, so I don't know, I guess I would, uh, I, I would suggest that if I, you know, that maybe, you know, like, Maybe even a visit, but, you know, like, I mean, there's so many, it's one of those issues that I think is, I really appreciate the way you're dissected, you know, Brie, because you have, even on the left, you have from the, you know, like Max uh, Blumenthal side to, uh, you know, even in on Rising, I mean, even, you know, like between Ryan and um, Kim, you know, there was a big mm-hmm. argument about what are the facts. And so like, as somebody that, would like to live his life and be able to watch an hour of news a day and get the actual facts. Mm -hmm. This one seems to be, you know, okay, I got a bigger headache that I started with, you know, so, uh, you know, that's kind of the exact opposite of what I was trying to. Yeah. Let me tell you, Amir, I started out three sheets to the wind, but I am sober now. (laughs) I am sober now. (laughs) Uh, so yeah, yeah, that's it. That's yeah. my point. I don't know if it helps. I just it's my two cents on it, you know. So, no, I appreciate you, Amir. Thank you, thank you, yeah. Amir. Um, Henry, you're the next caller again. Matt, jump in whenever if you have anything to say to, any, to anybody. But Henry, unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind this evening. Hi, Bree. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, it seems to me that the comparison between Nazi Germany and China today is pretty wild. Um, actually, I also wanted to make a comment about Section 230, but mm-hmm. everyone is talking, I think everyone really wants to hear about China first. 
So I'll just say I like, I like look, I thought we talked about a lot of interesting stuff in the episode. I like the section two thirty conversation. I like the conversation about, you know, patriotism and American exceptionalism. So I don't want anybody to feel peer pressure to talk about any given thing just because I because of what I put mm-hmm. in the title. So shoot okay. so speak your truth, Henry. All I wanna the main thing I just want to say on China is that I guess like two more than two hours or so into the conversation now. I'll be the first one to bring up the history of the opium wars that China suffered under for a long time until very recently. And the opium wars were basically the British Empire imposing their will onto China. Uh, I think Danny did bring up the century of suffering, uh, and I alluded to it. But uh, just to make it clear, though, the Chinese state suffered mightily at the hands of the British Empire and was forced to essentially become their end user of opium products for a long time. And it's only been through a century or so of doing capitalism very, very, very well that they've managed to claw their way to where they are now, which has been very impressive. And I think that a lot of the criticism that I hear leveled at China sort of comes down to they're doing capitalism better than us, which is pretty funny because capitalism was invented in Europe and spread to America and only came to China much later on comparatively. But I think China has really been able to see capitalism for what it is with pretty clear ideological eyes. And as Deng Xiaoping said, it doesn't matter if a cat is white or black if it catches mice. So they've meaning that they've been able to kind of look past capitalism versus socialist ideological debates and implement a system where they provide labor, other countries provide technology and investment, and over time that technology and investment grows to better and better capital accumulation within China to the point where they now rival America and Europe as economic super centers. Mm. So, I mean, I then in terms of the question of uh, the Uyghur situation in particular, I, I mean, a lot of people have pointed out that it's pretty difficult to get information about what's going on in general in the world, you know? I mean, despite the existence of massive amounts of telecommunication, fiber optic cables, and satellites, uh, I really don't know much detail about what's going on in China or in like how big the Azov Battalion is in Ukraine or even what's going on in my own city in some ways, you know? Mm. Uh, But if you're going to take it as your epistemological starting point that every country lies, so why ever believe anything that anyone ever says, then how do I know that there isn't a genocide, a secret genocide of white people going on in America or something, you know? I mean, to me, mm-hmm. the claim that, uh, that Mr. Stoller makes of like, oh, I don't have to believe in Chinese state media because obviously they're lying. Well, then well, how do I know there's Swiss media is lying, French media is lying, German media is lying? Like, if that is just the basis of jumping to your conclusion, then how do you not, why do you choose that conclusion to jump to and not another one? 
Is Tucker Carlson right about replacement theory, Matt? That's American media telling us that, you know, whites are on the way out. Matt? Yeah, no, us? I mean, I think just generally, generally the way I look at this is, um, you know, you have, you have free speech um, in America. There are obviously problems, you know, with free expression. And across a lot of the world, there's kind of the ability to say things um, and publish things. And, and that's, that's, you know, so there's a lot of bullshit, right, out there. And governments tell, you know, they lie a lot. And they, um, some of them more than others, but, you know, it's, it's, it's not a, it's, it's, it's a true thing. But um, I think just in, you know, the Chinese uh, government doesn't have free expression. Like there, there just is no uh, free press. They've kicked out most of the Western press. And, you know, they, um, uh, they, because of that, you don't have any, you don't have any check. It's all, it's just sort of the, I, I think we just have, it's a black, in many ways, it's a black box, right? So it took a year you know, and people freaked out when when Tom Cotton said um, that that there it was potentially a, the COVID was potentially a lab leak, and they said, "How dare you say this?" You know, Chinese government, there's no evidence for this, and, and yada yada yada. And, and the reason there wasn't any evidence for it is because uh, there's no free press in China, um, and there was nobody who was allowed to snoop around. And now it's clear we don't actually know what happened and the Chinese government's covering up and there, there are no checks and balances in that country to figure out what's going on. And so I think, um, I think this is a, this, there are checks and balances in the U S there are checks and balances. We, we're a messy country, but like you can see the mess, right. And it's like really obvious to everyone in the world with the mess the mess is that choice to make all that mess obvious is a choice. Uh, and it's a good choice. And China's made a different choice. And so uh, why am I more likely to believe sources of information that are in countries where there's more free expression? Like, I, I think it's because it's pretty obvious because people don't, you know, they don't have to lie on behalf of power. It's always more convenient to lie on behalf of power. You always make more money to if you lie on behalf of power. Not, not in every case, but, um, but, you know, there are always incentives to do that. But, you know, you don't have to do it or you get killed. But in China, you know, you... If you say the wrong thing, you get put in prison. There is no free press. And I, I think we have to take that seriously. But I think you're, you know, one of the things that's interesting about is, is your, your basic point is about like, what do we, how do we know what is real? I think it's a real, it's a real struggle. It's a struggle for all of us. Um, and we have to all operate on partial information. Indeed. We do have to all operate on partial information. Uh, I think that... I, uh, we, that, but that really is the kind of the crux of it. I mean, we all have partial information about what's going on in China. None, we don't, none of us has perfect information about what's going on in China. So in a way it kind of comes down to what you choose to believe, you know, I, uh, you can kind of connect the dots in whatever way you want to connect them. And I don't really think that uh, connecting the dots in a way that I uh, show that points that makes it look like that they are doing a genocide in a, or are poised to, you know, I mean, if they're poised to do a genocide, who isn't poised to do a genocide, you know, uh, mm -hmm. but 
Like, anyways, I wanted to get on to my uh, point about Section 230. Yeah, can you make make that make a quick Section 230 point in a minute okay, or less sure. if you can? So basically, when you talk about Section 230, I think it's important to consider a amorphous boundary between what is speech and what is action, because when we looked at the kind of Citizens United situation, a lot of people would say that uh, well, people made the argument that money is speech, but obviously as, uh, I guess, anti-capitalists, and if you consider yourself that, uh, you'd pro- we'd probably want to disagree with that and not uh, say that the ability to give as much money to anyone you want is analogous to do as much free speech as possible. Anyways, that's just to say that uh, the line between speech and action can take more than one form. And when it comes to uh, the Section 230 question, I read a book by Carrie Goldberg, who is an attorney for victims' rights. And it, the book was a lot about uh, a lot of online harassment topics. And I didn't expect Section 230 to come up that much in the book, but it turned out the book was almost all about Section 230. Because mm-hmm. Section 230 has been used as a defense by companies in an instance where someone makes a dating profile of someone else and says something like, I have a rape fantasy and I live here, here's my office and like, let's come meet up. And then when people actually go to try to meet that person, uh, unknown to that person, then that person complains to the dating company and those dating companies have said that Section 230 precludes them from having liability because they're a platform, not a publisher of the Mm. content so i think that section 230 is something that we need to abolish as quickly as possible uh and it's not just something that is like a abstract philosophical question of like what is your right to say whatever you want or anything because there is a boundary line between where saying something becomes an action and section 230 prevents platforms from being held accountable for the speech that they promote so, anyways, that was let my me, comment on two thirty. Let's can, can we can we stay with that example for a second because I think that everyone like everyone agrees that that's a horrible thing to have happened and that the primary onus is on the individual who did that. And so, to me, the question is: mm-hmm. Is the platform, is the host of the dating site, in a better position, in a position to have a meaningful impact on preventing those kinds of things from happening? You know, do they have? Um, the primary kind of agency in that situation where they have a responsibility, a duty of care. And to me, it seems like, okay, yeah, you could say there has to be some kind of authorization process, some kind of verification process to say, this is really who you are. And a lot of sites have stuff like that, whether it's like, Oh, here, use your college email address. Or um, a lot of the dating apps now do have a verification thing where you like take a selfie and it, does like an analysis with the pictures you've posted to make sure your pictures are accurate. So that seems easy enough. And maybe their liability liability shouldn't attach if they do that. But then I also wonder like if they do do that, should a platform still be liable? Like at a certain point, is it trying to hold a platform responsibility for the fact that they're responsible for the fact that there's bad people in the world? And is this really a section two thirty issue at all? So can I, can I chime in here? Cause that's the grinder case. Kerry Goldberg's mm-hmm. awesome. Um, so what happened is this guy's ex-boyfriend was 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 trying to uh, 
this guy got a restraining order against his ex-boyfriend, and this guy sent more than a thousand men over the course of a year to his apartment under the premise mm-hmm. that he had violent rape fantasies. You know, there some of them assaulted him or followed him. I mean, it was a it was a real scheme by this guy, and and he ha- he was able to get most of the of the dating sites to take this guy's profile down and actually ban him, but Grinder wouldn't, and um, and so he sued Grinder and he said, look, I have a I have a restraining order against this guy, and all these other sites have taken down this guy's profile and won't let him form new fake ones. Um, but because uh, this guy this guy was. Um, but like Grinder won't, so he sued. So so she sued Grinder not under um, speech terms, but under a product liability theory. So saying Grinder is producing uh, a defective product that they mm. that they know harms people, right? So like a toy that blows up or something like that. They were saying Grinder does this. They know it has this flaw, and they won't do anything about it. And mm-hmm. it went to um, and the judges said explicitly when it went on what was appealed. Um, the judges explicitly said, this is horrible. We wish we could do something about it. But Section 230 precludes any action here because it's not a product. It's a platform. And the Congress decided that there is no liability, even when a platform knows that their platform is incurring harm to people. And you see this across the board. So you know, th- there are lots of scams and frauds that are happening that the platform, uh, platforms, various platforms could squeeze out and get rid of very easily. They don't. They fight very hard to make sure that they have no liability. Um, and it's a, it's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it, like this is just the, this is the best example. It's like it's like a perfect case, right? Because it's just horrible. But that's like the, that's what this specific case was about and why Section 230 is so dangerous. I just, I'm a little, I don't know. it. So I'm still stuck on Zephyr Teachout's position of there being parts that need to be repealed and parts that don't because of the issue of it basically really raising the obligation for moderation for sites that really are much more neutral than a dating site and which really are like a telephone company. And it is completely conceivable that I could um, list my ex's number in the classifieds and say he had a dangerous, he had a rape fantasy and send a bunch of people to go rape him, you know, call him up and, you know, I don't know, obviously it's not the same because you can't tell where somebody is with the phone, but basically call him and harass him and say terrible things to him. Um, because I put his number in the phone book or put his phone number in the classified ads. And that wouldn't necessarily make us all think that, you know, Verizon or uh, whatever the, you know, Bell Atlantic phone company or whomever. I don't even know what are landlines. I don't even know, but that they should be liable for that. And so I, I, I understand in some cases, what Zephyr says is when these places act like a publisher, when they are controlling the flow of information, when they are, you know, then they should be liable as a publisher. But it does seem to me that sometimes very bad things happen. And we are and, and in this case, like grinder, knew what was going on and kind of knowingly chose not to intervene. Like that, that seems like someone should be on the hook for like falsely representing themselves on the site in a way that should violate the site standards. And that should take care of that. But, but that seems to me like that's maybe a grinder policy issue, a negligence issue, but not necessarily a two thirty issue. Well, you would think, right. But they don't uh, enforce their own policies enough 
to the point where they let this kind of stuff run rampant. I mean, it, it, I brought up a pretty extreme example, but revenge porn is a similar sort of case where companies, like if you just have like a web hosting thing and someone goes on it and they like sign up as a customer and then they start promoting Nazi ideology or something like that, then in my opinion, the person, the company that is benefiting financially from providing that sort of service should be held legally liable. And I, I guess, and I think that there absolutely is room for nuance. I'm not familiar with Zephyr Teachout's thing about how she wants to like partially re repeal it. It's, it's probably good. Uh, but I think in general, the point is that uh, in capitalism, these companies have a perverse incentive to allow this sort of stuff because they don't want to spend money on moderation, but I think that they should be forced to, frankly. So yeah, another, also, another sorry, example would be, um, I believe it was Snapchat that had this feature which let you, I think like uh, with a friend, you could like each show how fast you were going and people would use it in ways like essentially they would be speeding and kids would drive and they would die because they were like they would they were speeding you know they were going too fast like together and racing or whatever and it was like clear that snapchat um knew this was happening and so they got sued under the product liability theory and then they used the defense of section 230 saying oh well, this is this is just speech it's not um it's not a product and they actually lost that case and they put a um like they put a speed limit on their own on, on, on their own product, so it's like you can't go over 30 miles or something like that, but they acknowledge... Why, are, why is everybody bringing product liability cases? Is that The fact that everyone's bringing product liability cases here suggests to me that there's a, this is a legal problem. That some well, other bringing, theory of the case that makes a lot more sense is precluded, and that's why everyone's trying this workaround that then gets blocked by Section 230. Like, why, why, are, why are these, like, basic kind of, like, negligence-style cases? I mean, like, I don't know what the... Well, there's, there's just, brought, I mean, I think people have brought a lot of different kinds of cases and some of them get blocked and some of them don't. And it's just that there's a, there's a, the basic problem here is that the internet, like section 230 was passed in 1996. And it, what you should have, as you know, is like the development of all these common law torts to figure out what you can and can't do. And you develop these over time through the courts and through litigation to figure out like, you know, what works and what doesn't. And Section 230 essentially stopped the development of those uh, of, of that of that case law, and so now you have all this harmful stuff that's happening, and it really the courts haven't developed and figured out what does defamation look like and what does product liability look like and what is you know how do we actually impose like traditional speech limits that we used to have mm. um, on, the, on the internet, and I think that there are commercial limits fraud. Potential infection, emotional distress, all the rest of this, and that's the real problem here. And so, if you get rid of Section 230, then you're throwing a lot of good decisions to the courts, and you can spin any nightmare scenario that you want, and maybe they will come true, or maybe they it's very obvious that you know we have a, a yeah we have a formed or deformed legal environment that allows for a lot of harm, and there doesn't seem to be a way forward as long as Section 230 is there and blocking things. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it needs to at very least be partially repealed. God, all this legal stuff seems so interesting now that I'm not in law school anymore. 
<laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you, Henry. We are coming up at 11 o'clock and I don't want us to go past that point because I only wanted to go two hours tonight because mama is tired and coming down off of her tequila. <laughs> so Joe, someone wanted me to skip around a bit, but like I didn't skip around today because the people in the front of the queue seem to be like a good, like not, not the, not the repeat callers, generally speaking. Okay. I'll skip around a little bit because I am seeing some people back here. I've never seen before. Uh, Daryl Malone. I don't think I've ever seen you in the chat. What's on your mind this evening? Unmute yourself. I know I probably caught you by surprise because you're way in the back. I can hear you loud and clear. What's on your mind this evening? Um, quite a bit. I thought it was a really good conversation. Um, there's a, I, I can definitely understand the instinct to want to understand what an actor is doing, right? Especially when they're extremely powerful. So that to me makes perfect sense. I just, even if it helps to illustrate why you need to be wary of an actor, I think it's still just, you can't treat it like something has already happened just because it could happen and you don't have an idea. You know what I mean? Which just which like, actor are we talking about? Which which part of the conversation are we talking about now, Daryl? I'm sorry. So you could, I mean, you could apply it to monopoly power, although I think that's not as, I think there's pretty obvious reasons for, you know, why you don't, but for countries, so China specifically, um, mm-hmm. there's just, I, looking at all the things that I've, that I've read about China that I've, uh, seen people speak on and things like that. It just seems like there's a pretty consistent campaign to demonize them for something. And I kind of came at this from the perspective of their investments in Africa. Um, I've been, you know, in the startup space and I've been in uh, Ghana and operated in that space there. And so I was really interested in, in the in the idea that there was now another actor on the world investment stage that was looking at Africa in a different light. And I thought that was a really positive thing. And then you hear in the media, oh, it's so terrible. They're doing debt diplomacy and all this. And, and it's like, okay, I mean, they, they absolutely could be. So I read on the subject. It turns out there was really no evidence for it. You hear the same stories repeated over and over again, and they don't really have any grip on reality. And so I kind of see this new thing through that light of like, okay, maybe there's something going on. I haven't heard people who are on the ground saying that there are things going on. So to me, it it seems like it's just another BS story that's being thrown out there. Though I do appreciate the idea that you should have some transparency mechanisms applied to all governments equally, you know, so. Well, Matt, what do you make of the idea? Thank you for that, Daryl. Matt, what do you make of the the idea that someone might want to trust Danny because he's been there on the ground versus someone else who hasn't? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I think there's there's, I mean, there's been plenty of people who've been on the ground there, um, who would who would disagree. Um, so it's just kind of a picking and choosing. Uh, in a sense. Okay. 
Dimitri, you're up next. Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. I mean, I think the other, another piece here is there's, there's plenty of experience that I think. Um... Hello. Hey, Dimitri. Can you hear me? I can hear you. What's on your mind this evening? Uh, so, yeah, I just wanted to talk about. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to address the comparison with Nazi Germany. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's kind of mind blowing how much people can ignore the human rights violations and, you know, millions of people. Did. You're real glitchy, Dimitri. Is it, maybe it's only me, but Dimitri, I can't hear you. How about now? I can hear you say, how about now? So let's shoot your shot. All right. Good. Um, yeah, I was just talking, uh, Nazi Germany comparison, um, not that helpful because, yeah, um, it's not that helpful because, you know, communist regimes, they could be equally uh, violating human rights, killing millions of people. Um, but it's significantly different, um, and I think it's e- it's easier to understand why people in the United States see China as a threat. Um, if you look at rural versus urbanization, and um, like how the U.S. trade relationship with China has devastated rural areas in the United States, like Walmart, for example, uh, is a product of trade relations with China um, and also just uh, communism in Russia and China was a lot about uh, just scaling a rural society very quickly up to uh, an urban society and there's definitely some benefits of this culturally and there was also some really terrible effects of this um, and it's not really analogous to Germany and Nazism because the ideology of the Nazis in Germany was more of like an agrarian utopia for their master race. And, you know, there was also industrialists on their side. But, um, you know, when it comes to like Elon Musk and his relationship with the Chinese Communist Party, I think a lot of people in rural America uh, they just really don't like having, I mean, they don't like having urban culture forced on them, which is one issue, but also like, look at what has happened to rural America with Walmart. I mean, they're completely devastated, depressed, you know, lots of times the only options for people is to join the military to like have a job and, and get out of a really terrible situation. And also when it comes to the uh, destruction of the environment um you know we're we're living through like a tidal wave of unnecessary technological bullshit that is a lot of times just a really fake solution like electric cars not gonna change uh climate change like you, they still it's it's electricity comes from coal and if not coal then it's going to come from nuclear and there's also there's not enough rare earth minerals on the planet 
for everybody who has a car now to have an electric car or everybody who has a cell phone and a laptop to get electricity for it from solar panels. Um, we just, there's not enough minerals to make enough solar panels to power all of these uh, phones and computers because we used them all on, you know, phones that, and computers that were obsolete, you know, after five years. So um, I think it's helpful to not make it about any one ethnic group or country because uh, what Danny was right that, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's, it's only about the elites in the United States. It's equally, it's about industrial monopolists. Um, and yeah, like, like I'm farm worker. I like being farm worker. Um, I definitely do resent uh, how I'm forced to use technologies that are really a pretty terrible deal. I mean, like, smartphones they're really expensive um and you know i think the best thing that that has come from them is uh catching the police killing people um other than that you know personally i would like to go back to a world without smartphones and i also like to go back to a world without twitter too um it's probably not possible but uh i wish elon musk would just uh you know run it into the ground so it didn't <laughs> except um, of course for your phone enable you to enabling you to join this riveting discourses meaning of course well i appreciate that too but look <laughs> at it this way like with 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 china like if if this and and this is like i don't know how people can like not be aware of this like china has mandatory social credit social media now like if we were in china we would not be having this conversation you know, we would be penalized for disagreeing with the government. You know, in, in China, they, they force people to have abortions. They put people in prison because they have a religious belief or they have, dis they have political belief that disagrees with the government. It's, it's pretty mind-blowing how somebody could apologize for the government of China as much as that guy. And while I was listening, I Googled him. And his name came up on this website called like the friends of so of uh, the the friends of communist or no sorry the friends of Chinese socialism, and it just made me think like like who pays this guy to as a journalist to write articles on some website called the friends of uh, Chinese socialism, um, in, in you know writing articles in defense of the Chinese uh, government and the Communist Party. Um, he sounded, uh, sketchy as fuck, honestly. So like no, Matt, I, I like, hear you, I hear you, Dimitri, but like, anyway, there's that's, people that, who are going to say the same thing about Matt. There's people who say the same thing about me. I'm Putin's yeah. puppet. Abby Martin is right. Russia's I, I, puppet. I don't, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't know that guy. So, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know, know him that. either. I met him tonight, but <laughs> yeah. people, but I'm just I mean, saying, people like, can ignore like it's it's easy i guess it's just easy for people to ignore like you know historical atrocities if it's convenient for like an ideology and i think about like like the democratic party now like i don't want to say it's like over communism but it is like like they're explicitly trying to uh to quickly uh kind of like urbanize rural areas i mean build back better and the green new deal that's 
explicitly what it's about. Like we're coming into your rural area to give you all this stuff that we think is great. And, you know, the people that live there are just like, no, like we don't want that because of this, that, and the other. And so like, I, like I'm, I'm pro the, the idea of, of people having social programs and, and a democratic government doing positive projects and everything, but I, I guess my reservations on this current regime is just like they could be doing it in a way that wasn't just to the benefit of uh, monopolists. Um, so yeah, that's yeah, that's, it's, that's it's what hard I have to, to consider. Say. I mean, the the need for Wi-Fi, for instance, is so essential. I mean, kids that can't do their homework. There's all these stories of like poor communities and rural communities during COVID where kids are all like crouched outside of McDonald's trying to suck up Wi-Fi so they can turn in their homework assignments or their college assignments. And, you know, it's hard for me to sit here and say that it is like me doing urban hegemony to want them to have Wi-Fi um, just because it might also benefit X Corp who wants to put a, you know, whatever business there or who wants Amazon who wants to track their movements on their phones. I mean, all of those things can be true at once. But I don't, I don't actually know how to untether what a community's needs are from what also is advantageous for the courtocracy. And it seems kind of like patronizing for me to say, uh, you rural community, you're great in your agrarian, you know, pre-industrial state. Let me not give you this thing that I very much enjoy. I mean, I hear what you're saying. I just, I'm just trying to work through how to even, you know, uh, do federal policy on that sort of a basis, but I really appreciate you calling in. I'm going to let Joe be the last caller tonight. Matt, I really appreciate your patience and your willingness to work through these issues with us and this hot crowd. Feel free to pipe in with any final words after Joe says his little piece here. Joe, bring us home. What's on your mind this evening? Hi, thanks, Bree. Uh, first time, can you hear me? I can hear you. I love the podcast conversation with Matt earlier today. Um, I don't agree with the Nazi thing, but I, I do think he made some good points. Um, I'll try to be brief here. Like racial inequality and economic inequality and discrimination are bad problems historically, but absolutely continuing into the present day. We have to address those. Um, that being said, and this is where I think I agree with some of what Matt was saying. Um, and I'm saying this especially in the context of the current and future U.S. policy in East Asia and the Indo-Pacific. Um, I'm kind of, at least there, I'm resistant to this idea that, you know, we should allow shame and guilt uh, to paralyze us that so much that we lack self-confidence to conduct a foreign policy um, that's capable of checking the bad actions of foreign countries, um, you know, whether foreign policy or tariff policy, as as you guys were talking about earlier today. Should China check our bad actions? I I can't answer for what China should and shouldn't do. Um, well, should but, China should, should is it morally right for China to sanction us and any other country that it thinks is behaving badly? 
I mean, why is I America? Mean, I like, I, I hear you, but why? I just, I'm not arguing with you. I just want to know what the, what the theory is behind why America should be the world's policeman and have the authority to decide who's doing good things and well, bad things. I agree with you. But that's not the question, Matt. The question, Matt, is do you agree with its choice to do so? Do you think that any no, country the, should, no, should make the, those the, kinds the, of decisions about other countries? The truth is, like I said, I, and I'm not saying this across the board by any means. I agree with the withdrawal from Afghanistan and uh, in more anti-imperialist foreign policy in a lot of other areas. But for me personally, I'm a little bit worried if we were to just withdraw from East Asia. Um, you know, there are troops stationed in South Korea and Japan. They have been there for a long time. Um, you know, the... There's a quote by this professor named Dominic Levin, and he says, empires end amid blood and dishonor. And, you know, this is not saying that empire should continue indefinitely, but I think it's just something to consider um, if you're talking about, you know, the the U.S. that um, because of the, the weight of our history and of um, our present deficiencies that we should not allow us to have uh, a foreign policy. I, I, I'm, I'm like, this is what I said to everybody that I talked to about imperialism in the wake of um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Tell me the like the the theory of the case. Tell me the the theory that can be applied to multiple circumstances with uniformity and consistency. That explains to me why us, apart from that, we like us and we are us, and so we all think our opinions are good. Like why us? Do we want to live like when we when we think about because how we design social time, programs? Wait a minute. When we think about how we design social programs, when we think as leftists, when we think as leftists about how to design social programs in our society, we often say we would want to design them as though we were the most vulnerable, weakest, powerless person in the society. If that's who you are, you should design a society, you know, to benefit, like to benefit that person with that person in mind, because who knows if that could be you or not. You shouldn't design it as though you're on top. And my concern is that we think about foreign policy exclusively as though we are on top, which we are not going to be for very much longer. And we're about to have to eat a lot of crow about our thoughts and feelings about what the dominant person is allowed to do in the world. Matt, go ahead. Um, no, you just you said, you just said a bunch of stuff. So I think uh, whoever was talking, was maybe I, I didn't want to. Get in between you two. I thought you guys were having some good conversations. No, I thought you were gonna you were gonna jump in there. I thought you had something to say about like why us. You said it's because we are the something well, like the I last fifty years. A couple years. of arguments. I mean, one is you know you can say why should we do it, right? And I think the underpinning that is this assumption that the question of does anybody have to do it, right? So first you have to ask in a global order, is there you know there is there a is there a, a a possible way to have a global order without anyone in charge um, or without any sort of hierarchy. Um, 
So I would wonder, do you think that there's a way to to have uh, a, a global order without any sort of hierarchy? Yes. I mean, I think the whole point of the internationalist project of groups like the Socialist Alternative is that in an ideal world, we have a community of people, the, the, the people in all of these countries, that because of our solidaristic relationship and our ability to support each other and resist the kind of punitive sanctions that our corporatist governments are um, applying to each other and the global trade policies that benefit none of us and all of them, we're able to come together and rise up. And the internationalists, the people like you know, Gerald Horn and Dr. CBS and, you know, uh, Jamu Baraka and, you know, uh, Shama Sawant who come on the show and, and, and really emphasize how important it is for these socialist movements to be international in origin uh, in nature. They emphasize that in part because they understand that just like bringing down America isn't enough. You're right, Matt. Someone is going to replace them. Someone is going to be on top as long as there are these hierarchies and the goal has to be bigger than bringing down our own national hierarchy. It has to be global or we're going to end up just under the thumb of somebody else in a different part of the world. And that's obviously a huge project. And I'm not sitting here saying, well, yeah, of course, we're going to bring down the whole global empire. But like, I do think that that is exactly why they have that focus, because they understand what the long game really looks like. And you know me, I'm not, I can't answer this question without bringing up Star Trek. Like, yeah, Star Trek and Star Trek World War Three brings down all of these um, uh, states and forces people to cooperate. And then the presence of the Vulcans and realizing we're not alone in the universe makes us realize that our differences are really petty and small in the first instance. And I hope it doesn't come to that. Like nuclear annihilation basically is what got us there in that world. But we're able to move forward in that context exactly because those kind of state lines have been broken down. Continue continue with the Star Trek analogy. I mean, you know that that Star Trek is based on a sort of Americanized vision of like what the UN could be. So it's an Americanized order. It's just that it's hegemonic and everybody buys it. So so you're not actually there isn't going to be a hierarchy. You're just saying I would like the hierarchy to be so obviously... No, I'm saying it's an American show. It's an American show invented by a a visionary but still limited man who was born in like 1925. (laughs) Like, but it was an explicit. I mean, it was explicitly based on you know certain ideas of what the world should look like, based on you know. Yeah, the the show started about 10 to 15 years after the UN was founded, and it had a very optimistic view of what that institution was going to be. No, but it was. yeah. What I'm saying is that it it doesn't actually jibe with the idea of uh, a utopianist sort of non-state based socialist like m- movement driven global order. It was a it's just a world government that looks a lot like America. That's what it was designed as, and that's that's what people thought the UN no, could be at that it's time. It's a show that was based on cowboys and space. It's not that deep. The point is that it, well, okay, it, well, you it, brought it up. I mean, I'm just I'm just what I want to get at is, is <laughs> what I was trying to get at is the basic question of. Can you have a global order without a hierarchy? And I don't think it's possible. And I don't think we've ever seen a, I don't think we've ever seen a, a global order when you didn't have hierarchies of states or some sort of state-like entities. And if that's the case, you know, and I, I think all these transnational movements, they exist, but like power is contained within sovereigns. And so I think there's a sort of, I don't take it serious. I, I don't think it's particularly serious to sort of, reject the idea of hierarchy in in a global order. And I think you have to, if I think it's important to think about the world, like it's important to recognize that if you believe that 
power is contained within sovereigns, that the relationships between the sovereigns really matters. And then which sovereigns structure that hierarchy matter as well. And one of the reasons I would make the argument that an American-led order is preferable to a Chinese-led order, and I'm not saying that, and we have this, I'm not, I don't think we've done a good job over the last 50 years. So I'm not saying like this is a great order, but what I am saying is like, um, you know, if you go back to the post-World War II moment, that was a different possibility. And I think that if we could improve things, it would, you know, I, so I'm sort of speculating as to a better way of doing things than what we're doing now, but not inconceivably better, just better. Um, the U.S. system is much more open. And, you know, one of the things like we have military alliances with a lot of Chinese, of a lot of the neighbors of China, right? And those are alliances, like they choose to be allied with us. Like they don't, you know, and that, and that's true with like, we have allies all over the world and those are choices. Like, okay, that's grossly overstated, Matt. The Chinese. And that's, I that's think it's grossly overstated. That we are an open system and countries do Matt. feel like they have a voice. No, but is it a preferable order to one where the decisions are very tightly controlled by a small group of people? Matt, see, I this is where the, the, I, your that, credibility, that, that, that's where uh, the argument I would you, make. You lose credibility here when you pretend like we don't have the IMF and the World Bank in a system that is coercive and forcing all kinds of country countries into picking sides when they would prefer to be in neither. And the whole reason we're in this Ukraine crisis is because of a tug of war where we're basically I, threatening. I'm saying that your credibility is that it starts to be undermined when you frame it that way that in a way that ignores that the IMF and the World Bank and all these national systems exist to coerce countries into joining one side or another in this bipolar universe, when frankly, most of them would like to opt out of both. The whole reason we're in the middle of this Ukraine crisis is because of the IMF pressuring, pr putting its austerity politics on Ukraine and asking it to choose between us or the deal that Russia is presenting, which isn't great, but was marginally less austere. The country chose to go with Russia and set off you know, the but, Victoria Newland evidence coup attempt by, you know, the coup by instigated by the U.S. because it was upset that they didn't they didn't I, really choose I us. You're really begging, I think all of this is really begging the question because you're operating from the premise that that the alternative is a utopian order where we don't have to actually think about power. And what I'm saying is we have to think about power and I'm willing. To it's make not that. Choices. No, don't be glib, Matt. Don't be glib I'm and dismiss it. I'm, I'm not, not sitting. This isn't utopia. This isn't sitting. You're saying we don't have to think well, about power. Yeah, it's no, saying that realistically. No, Matt, I think it's really unrealistic and naive to sit here and say, oh, it's completely OK for the U.S. to go ahead and commit abuses and be as I horrific as it's that. been for the I last 15 years, 50, and, and, 50 years. I'm because at least it's better than the alternative. That's a kind of pessimistic. No, that's a kind of uh, apolog apologia that allows the status quo to continue indefinitely. If you aren't going to work toward a utopia, then you're part of the problem. You cannot be dismissive of a, the. This is the whole point of what we were talking about on the podcast, Matt. You have to have an orientation, a perspective on this stuff that has you oriented oriented toward progress as as opposed to tweaking around the edges of the status quo. Which is what it, you're saying when you're saying, well, it's better that we be in charge than anybody else. So we might as well stay here. That's how people end up in, in mud huts for thousands of years. Oh, it's better than sleeping in the cave. I like, like come on. I like you. <laughs> I, I, I'm enjoying this conversation. But I do, I do think you're begging the question. And I think that that question is, is um, 
you know, we have we have to think about power and we have to think about hierarchies. And those are just those are just part of our world. And so what like and I think your criticism is coming from the idea that we don't have to think about power and hierarchies. And the reality is like we have a world in which those hierarchies and those that exist and we have to operate from that premise. So when I asked you, you know, can we do, you know, do, does it, does it have to be zero sum? Does, does there have to be a higher, a global sort of order? You said no. And I, and I think that like, because you said no, because you have this idea in your head that, and I think it's a broadly, it's a broad, you know, broadly held view. It's not you, obviously, just, but it's this romantic vision that's been going on for hundreds of years that we don't have to deal with the problems that we're dealing with now that in fact we can transcend them that we can we can build an international global community so that we don't have war so that we don't have these conflicts and you know i i just think that that that's a way of avoiding power because human beings are competitive i mean we we are there are many things about human beings but we we are we are we have rivals we um we we you know, there's, we have all sorts of aspects to ourselves, but one thing that's always been true about human beings is they contest each other for power. We are human beings animals. have assholes, so we're always going to shit in our own and I, houses and, have, and have, have no plumbing. No, that's ridiculous. <laughs> People progress, Matt. And saying that you're aiming for something better in the future is not saying that you're naive to the reality that is right now. And that is so patronizing to pretend that because someone has a goal they don't care about the the con the circumstances they are in today how do you think that i plan to get to that goal if i'm just naive about power and don't want to deal with power and don't want to deal with human nature i think that what is really deeply disturbing is the idea that it's the pragmatic big brain solution to pretend that literally nothing can change more than an inch in that direction or an inch in this direction because you're so pessimistic and frankly, ignoring thousands of years of human history and a level of progress that could be inconceivable to people living just 150 years ago. Like, come on. Like, we have got to stop. The, the, the biggest enemy is not the right. It's, it's, it's fucking liberal. I'm sorry, Matt. I'm not saying that you're a liberal. I don't know how you self-describe. But it is this kind of liberal apologist attitude that basically says anybody who tries to do anything better must just be a hopeless romantic. Words like romantic, which I got to say are gendered in a way that I don't fucking love either. You know, that, that it's all because, because I'm just, my head's in the clouds and I'm not a real person. I'll tell you I'm a real fucking person, Matt. I'm a real person who wakes up every day and has community members and people that I love that are in circumstances that I feel like are unconscionable. They're unconscionable. And my desire to not say, this is good enough. Eh, it's never going to really change. What are we going to do? I'm motivated out of that headspace by the fact that I see people with light in their eyes and a spark in their bodies that I respect deeply as a humanist. And I think it's unacceptable that I know that there are millions and billions of human beings like that all around the world living in unconscionable situations. And we're sitting here and th thinking for the rest of human history in perpetuity until we knock ourselves out in a climate apocalypse or from the fucking meteorite and get out and don't look up, that it has to be that way. I refuse. And even if I die trying, demoralized, not a single thing fucking changes before I die, how dare I not try?
Lance, you said you were going to be brief and you whined about it a lot in the chat and you were being such a pill that I brought you up to have the final, final word. <laughs> hey, um, yeah, hi, can you hear me? You. Hello? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, yeah. Okay, in context, China was an early but staunch ally in World War II, as was Russia, lost 30, 30 million people. Since then, all during the Cold War, Nixon, you know, opened up to China. We played off diplomacy, too, with militaristicness. And all since World War I, we've manufactured consent for war. But in between all that, there was actual diplomacy. Now it seems like we want to ramp up everything with Ukraine. We want to provoke China regarding Taiwan. It's crazy. It seems like it's all military industrial complex and no diplomacy. At least there was a little of that before. But as far as Matt, what I would ask him is, okay, of course, the historical context of what we did with Indians and slavery in terms of our own genocide. But also forget about past history. What we're doing with Saudi Arabia in terms of what we're, I found out that in terms of what we're doing in terms of Ethiopia, right? Uh, okay. So Khashoggi was an American uh, resident whose wife, I think, was a citizen. But correct me if I'm wrong, but the Palestinian journalist that was killed was an American citizen who was killed. So I don't know what China's doing around the world, but our allies aren't exactly doing such wonderful things regarding genocide currently today in terms of what's happening indirectly with us with Yemen. Speaking about proxy wars in Ukraine, what about what's going on in Yemen, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it seems to me, too, a late-stage capitalism country like us versus an ascended country like China, we're doing, they're doing, China's doing to us what we did to Russia in terms of pricing them out and bankrupting them while we had a strong economy. And with their uh, Belt and Road Initiative, they're going to do what uh, China and what uh, what Russia said. We're going to overtake you without a shot. We're going to do it economically with the Belt and Road Initiative. So I think it's a lot, in some ways, scarier economically in terms of what China's going to be in 50 years versus what we've been in the last 100 years. But in terms of what Matt's talking about, what about all the genocide that we know for a fact that's going on, other than this kind of reported stuff that is going on that we're involved with currently? Matt? Yeah, I'm against it. Okay. Well, look, I know I'm being told that while I was ranting, I was not hurt, illegible. I don't, someone could have told me, Matt, you could have told me you couldn't hear what I was saying. Um, But, you know, I won't repeat myself. It was really good, though. I don't know. I mean, I could tell you were in a flow. And I didn't want to interrupt it. I mean, if you didn't okay. couldn't hear it, then what div- what difference? Well, I could it hear make? like every every like two out of every three words. Okay. I can kind of get the gist of what you were saying. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is, even if we take Matt at his word that all the genocide that he says is going on regarding China, I think we're outpacing that currently, right now, currently uh, in, in the world. Uh, uh, you know. Compared to even every, even if I grant everything you're saying, now, I, I, are we being genocidal around the world today as, a, as as China, even based on what you're saying? I, I hear you, Lance. I do think that we've kind of responded to this point. I mean, I don't think Matt and I are going to disagree in this in this late hour. I, I think we've kind of mooted this. Matt doesn't feel like what's going on, what China's doing, what America's doing is comparable. And that's just kind of a factual dispute that we have. But I appreciate you calling in. Um, I appreciate all of you. 
Thank well, you no, so that's much. Not, that's not totally fair. I, okay, you know, go I ahead, Matt. Killed, no, I mean, the U.S. killed 6 million people in Vietnam. That's that's pretty bad, you know? I mean, that's not a... <laughs> that's not a... Um, that's not a small number of people. Um, the U.S. has done horrible things, right? I, I don't... I take that very seriously. Current. Um, I'm talking, no, now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think killing half a million people in Iraq was horrible. I mean, like, the, the U.S. has done, ter- you know, being in Afga- you know, Afghanistan, what we did there was... Yemen and Africa and places in Central America still and places all over the world now that we're doing with... Well, I wouldn't, I don't, I don't accept Yemen. Like, I don't think that that's... Saudi Arabia killed the Chelsea, and now we have Israel. What about Israel? You know, that's our staunch ally, and they just killed an American citizen journalist. Uh, well... Okay. Look, I think you can. I think it's basically like history is always bloody. It just is. No, right, right and now though, it, Israel's much more bloody to the Palestinians, as far as I can see, than China is to the Uyghurs. Well, the key, the key sense there is as far as you can see. They make sure you can't see. Um, I and and I think that we can't we can't like it's pretty. It has a little bit of a haze over. Um, so yeah, okay, but let's take everything at face value that you're saying. What Israel's doing and what the United States is doing, American citizen journalists get killed. What Israel's doing, the Palestinians. I just don't see how these. Well, yeah, but that's us because what? Because we have the we have we wear the white hats and we wear the red, white, and blue, and they're the bad guys. It's, it's not just, a question of whether you know of whether the U.S. is always doing the right thing or not. It's a question of what kind of system do you think should be like, what kind of system can lead to a better world? Right. And I think we can all agree that the U S led order, which is sort of a Western order right now is misfiring and doing a lot of terrible things. I think we all agree on that. I think we all agree that the Chinese system is doing a lot of terrible things and is much less powerful right now. And so they just don't have the global reach. When you run the world, which the US and sort of its allies kind of do, there's a lot of blood involved in that. And the way we're doing is particularly bad, although it's not as bad as as it has been in previous periods. But that's just reality. And what do you want going forward? And I happen to Not think yeah, that, I that, that I, what do you think? I happen to think that a system which has the possibility of being a liberal dem- democratic order that we can reform is a better choice than one that is totalitarian and highly secretive. 10,000%. Because I just give respond very, very briefly. That's all. So. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. 10,000% agreement. Now, China, very, very, very scary, scarier than Russia ever was because they're going to do it with this Belt and Road Initiative. They're going to do it economically, you see. So my dad said this very colorfully, World War II Marine, may you rest in peace. And he didn't mean it just militarily. He said, China can march soldiers four, four abreast into the sea and never run out of soldiers. He didn't mean it just militarily. Never run out of Chinese. He meant that we could never win a ground war. What? So in other words, yes. 
absolutely it's the case that they're doing all martial law. They're doing all carrots. They're doing Belt and Road. So, yes, China is absolutely a, 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 you know, a dangerous threat, you know, to more so the Nazis than the Nazis in the sense that that was such an evil empire that we had to hate and kill and the whole world, you know, rose up against. It ain't going to be like that with China. They're not going to do it. They're going to do it without a shot, like Russia always said they were going to do. They're going to do it that way. So I'm not suggesting that, like, you know, that our way wouldn't be better. What I'm saying is that what we're doing is late stage capitalism, all war, all the time. So China's going to win based on everything you're saying, even. See what I mean? Not about disagreeing with what you're saying about how dangerous China is, but they're not dangerous militarily. That's out. That's outmoded. They're going to do it, like I said, technologically, 200 mile an hour train. And also, remember the guy who was the guy, the Chamber of Commerce guy in China? He said, don't worry about these guys. Their greed will get in the way so quickly because all they think about is the quarterly profit. And we have a 10-year plan and a 20-year plan, and they will give us all the technology. They will sell it all to us, and they will do it with glee, and that's how we're going to win. So don't, uh, uh, you know, of course China's a huge threat. And they're, they're more of a threat, like I said, than Nazi Germany because they're not going around killing six million people. They're going to. So they're gonna they're gonna feed like sixty six hundred million people or six you know and that's how yeah, you, well you you just I mean okay so but the fact that we're destroying ourselves faster based on everything you're saying though Matt no we, you know what we're doing is just the opposite we're going all the way from the hundred years ago okay, can I can I militarize every place we want to go and put our foot stamp everywhere and be the policeman of the world it, it's ridiculous so uh, yeah. Okay, Matt, can you give a quick response? Because I really feel lied to about brevity, and I'm, I've got to tell you, Lance, never falling for that again. <laughs> I feel like no one's really respecting how I come down from my drink session and how I still have to get on the elliptical tonight. I feel like there's not a lot of respect for how much I still need to get on the elliptical tonight. So, Matt, right. can you give your response, please? So I can yeah, I mean, I just – so so I'll just throw three things, then I'll let you go. Um, because So the first thing would be – that largely the the everyone is relying on American um, uh, military and and public security to basically keep the sea lanes open and to make sure that um, uh, to provide sort of global security. Everyone. So China China ships in oil from the Middle East and it relies on U.S. security to do that. And uh, and so that, that's kind of the whole world is relies on the U S for, to, to keep order, right. In lots of places, which, where there's not violence, right. There isn't violence, there's no piracy or whatever. And if, when the China, China displaces the U S or with a different order, um, China is going to be taking that public security role and they're going to handle it differently. So the blood that, you know, is happening in the U S is shedding or U S allies are shedding the Chinese displaced the U S they're going to be shedding it and they're going to be, doing it in a different way and they're already doing it. they're building a massive military they're building they you know a couple of years ago china doves were like oh china doesn't have any military bases abroad now they do um they're they're getting ready right and they they shed blood they just don't need to right now but they will um the second thing is i think people have to realize it's not just an american issue with china like much of the world really distrusts china in a way that they don't distrust the u.s or they don't distrust um, kind of other countries like you to look at poll, poll, public opinion polling in India and they're just like 
they basically like everyone except China. They're like, we are terrified of China. All of China's neighbors are terrified of China. Um, and they, many of them have military alliances with the U.S. because they're afraid of China. And they're not afraid of us. Even Vietnam, which we, you know, we killed six million Vietnamese. They want a, a, a much closer security alliance with the United States. And I think you have to take the rest of the world, what a lot of these countries think seriously. They have deep economic relationships with China. They're afraid of China. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's saying a lot, right? And then the last point, and I think I'm just going to defend my Nazi analogy because um, I know that's been sort of the most contentious uh, thing. <laughs> but, well, just this is the last thing I'll say. Okay, so, so I, I take it seriously. Um, it, we had partial, we have partial information. And I think a lot of this debate is about the nature of the information that we're getting. But we had partial information in 1935 as well. Well, we didn't know in 1933, we didn't know what was going to happen. And there were a lot of people who thought, well, you know, Hitler will moderate or this isn't really going to be that bad or whatever. It's over there. And um, and, I, and I think that when I use the term Nazi Germany, and I, I realize people are not taking this way, so this is a communication problem on my part. But I do think we have to consider that these things are quite possible that there are a lot of analogies, things could be worse this time, and that they had partial information back then. If they had known in 1935 what was going to happen by 1945, I think they would have acted differently. But that is always the nature of looking at these problems. You always have partial information, and you have to take seriously that some, some very horrible things could happen, horrible things that humans have done before and humans could do again. And that's all I'll say, and thank you so much for having me. And I'm, uh, I've had a really good time and you are a fantastic host and you guys are a great audience and great speakers. Matt, you have been so patient and so gracious as I vetch and moan and moderate all evening. And you kings and queens who have been here with me for three hours, the fact that you and Danny were willing to be on the same podcast at the same time, let me tell you, it is so difficult to get ideologically opposed people in the virtual room. I have so much gratitude for all of you. I feel like I have learned so much about China, about myself, about my glucose levels, about my alcohol tolerance this evening. And I'm grateful for all of you for being here. Remember, please, you can do me the greatest benefit it will be a true mitzvah if you would all clip the best parts of this episode and disseminate them to the internet including the rant that i am being told by the chat will be not clippy when you do it in the when you listen to the playback so i appreciate all of you if you are curious what these soulful stylings are it is the theme song to one of the great black chinese collaborations of all time the Last Dragon. <laughs> a real 80s hit. I hope if you haven't already seen it, you check it out. Vanity, she's a star. That lead was the subject of all of my romantic fantasies in elementary school. <laughs> he still looks pretty good today. You should check out his Instagram. But now we're getting off the rails. I want to thank you all. Keep the faith. We have a great episode coming up on Monday's Bad Faith Podcast. You're not going to want to miss it. It's a panel discussion with some of your all-time faves about the Tucker Carlson series that has been going on at the New York Times. Read it, and we are going to assess it, and we are going to talk about what the left's response to Tucker Carlson and his ilk 
should be. You can catch me on the Hill three days a week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I'll see you there. Feel free to get in the co- comment section and defend me. I appreciate it. Take care of yourselves and keep the faith. Oh, 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 o